Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 234, Mutiny on the Rising Sun, with Dr. Jared Ross Hardesty. Hi, I'm Jake. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Jared Ross Hardesty, author of the new book, Mutiny on the Rising Sun, A Tragic Tale of Smuggling, Slavery, and Chocolate. Dr. Hardesty and I will discuss why a reputable sea captain would become a smuggler, trafficking in illegal chocolate in enslaved Africans. The risks an 18th century Bostonian would take to provide himself with a competence, or enough money to allow his family to live independently, and what it meant in that era to be of but not from Boston. At the heart of the story is a gruesome murder and mutiny on the high seas, illustrating the fundamental brutality of life in the 18th century. But the role of the church, specifically Old North Church, in the social and economic lives of Bostonians is also central to understanding the life and death of Captain Newark Jackson. Stay tuned to hear how Dr. Hardesty has illuminated a long-forgotten chapter in Boston history, uncovering the dark web of interconnections between Old North Church, chocolate, and chattel slavery. But before we talk about Captain Jackson and the Mutiny on the Rising Sun, I just want to pause and thank our Patreon sponsors. This week marks the fifth anniversary of the Hub History podcast, and the show's changed a lot in that time. When I go back and listen to the earliest shows, I can hardly stand the terrible sound quality and amateurish delivery, and the stories are only a few minutes long with the most cursory research. I like to think that the show has improved quite a bit since then, albeit gradually. A lot of that improvement is thanks to our Patreon sponsors, the loyal listeners who sign up to contribute $2, $5, or even $10 a month toward the cost of making Hub History. Their support has allowed us to invest in better microphones, cables, and soundproofing to upgrade our sound, and it's unlocked research databases and online subscriptions that we otherwise couldn't afford. I'd also like to give them credit for improving my delivery, but I think that might just be a matter of practice, practice, practice. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And a heartfelt thanks to all our new and returning sponsors for making the show possible. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Dr. Jared Ross Hardesty is an associate professor of history at Western Washington University, way out in Bellingham, Washington. He studies the global entanglements of colonial Boston, and he's the author of two previous books exploring slavery in Boston. His Unfreedom, Slavery and Dependence in 18th Century Boston was our Boston Book Club pick back in episode 160, and we featured a talk about Black Lives, Native Lands, White Worlds, A History of Slavery in New England, as our upcoming historical event back in episode 162. His latest work, Mutiny on the Rising Sun, A Tragic Tale of Smuggling, Slavery, and Chocolate, was just published last week. It's available through an affiliate link in this week's show notes, which you can find at hubhistory.com slash 234, or you can find it at your favorite independent bookshop. Dr. Jared Ross Hardesty, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. So the first thing... I have to ask, as we, we talk about your new book, Mutiny on the Rising Sun, is how you first encountered this sea captain named Newark Jackson and realized that there was a larger story to be told about him. 
It's funny story, actually. So in September 2016, the Old North Church invited me to give a talk about my first book, Unfreedom. And before the talk, I was sitting in the in the rectory and having a conversation with the then um, vicar and uh, who was also the executive director of the Old North Foundation, Steve Ayers, and a few other staff members. And they asked me, do you know about this guy, Newark Jackson? And I said, who? And they said, well, you write about him in Unfreedom. And I said, I did. <laughs> and um, as it turns out, I did. I used him as an example in the book as, of, a, of a person who owned uh, owned slaves. Uh, he, he was an enslaver in 18th century Boston. And I used him because his, his probate inventory was particularly long and detailed, which we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to later. And so I so it listed the enslaved people he owned in, in relation and their value in relation to the rest of his property. And I said, no, I didn't. I just totally forgot that I'd used him as an example. And, and, and I think it had to do with his name, actually, like his name was so catchy. I, it, you know, I just, I, it, something about it stuck out in my mind. So I put it in the book. And so they proceed to tell me that they have a historic chocolate shop named after this man. Um, and they don't know too much about him. They had done some basic genealogical research. They kind of done their due diligence about him, but outside of about kind of four basic facts, they, they didn't know much about him. They, they knew that, uh, he lived in Boston, was a sea captain. They knew he was a parishioner at Old North. They knew he was married. Uh, uh, and had had three kids, um, and they knew, or they they thought there was a possibility. the The genealogical research had uncovered an apocryphal story, yet to be confirmed true, that he had been murdered in a mutiny in 1743 off the coast of Suriname. And so, Old North had all these questions about Newark Jackson, about where he acquired the chocolate for his uh, his 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 chocolate shop. He was a chocolatier in Boston, and in fact, that's why uh, when Old North opened their historic chocolate shop, they had uh, they chose him. They had a list of parishioners who dealt in chocolate uh, during the 18th century, and and I think once again um, the name, right? His name kind of stood out, and and so they named the cho- the the chocolate shop Captain Jackson's Historic Chocolate Shop. After him, but they, they didn't know a whole lot about him besides those, those things I just, uh, I just mentioned. Um, and so they had real questions about how did he acquire the cacao and, and things like that. And, and, and I became kind of interested in this. Um, and, and it was the apocryphal story of the mutiny that really caught my attention because it, it noted he'd been murdered off the coast of Suriname in 1743. Uh, Suriname, uh, was a Dutch colony. Today it's an independent nation on the northeastern coast of South America. Um, and it was a plantation colony, very similar to those in the West Indies. So large scale uh, sugar plantations using enslaved African labor. It just happened to be on the mainland of South America rather than an island in the Caribbean. And so I, I assume just based on the apocryphal story, that's probably where Jackson was acquiring the cacao. Uh, Suriname was a was a grew cacao I knew. But I, I, I've long had this interest in the kind of Dutch uh, world uh, and um and the kind, and especially uh, the interactions between Dutch colonies and Dutch colonists with early American colonists, some of whom were Dutch. Um, if you know the history of New York, um, and so I, I have some, I have some friends and colleagues at Leiden University in the Netherlands, uh, Carwin Fata Black, most importantly uh, for this story. So I, I write Carwin, and, and Carwin's an expert on the history of smuggling and slavery in in Dutch Suriname. And uh, he almost immediately wrote back, and he said, "Oh, uh, your Captain Jackson's a bit of a smuggler." isn't he? He had all of these records of Jackson in Suriname um, coming and going in port entry records, which kind of answered that question, where did he get the cacao? Um, funny, and I was actually happy to leave it at that. It's like, okay, question answered, kind of moving on. And then uh, a couple days later, uh, Carwin emailed me again, and, and the subject line of the email was murder! Exclamation point. <laughs> 
And it that'll get out, your attention. Yes, they got definitely got my attention. And um, and so the funny funny thing, uh, he he proved that that apocryphal story of a mutiny was actually true. Um, two of the mutineers were put on trial, and the uh, the trial records were in the Dutch archives. And now all of a sudden, we had a lot of information to go off of because when you begin reading um, the testimony, because it's the testimony of two mutineers and the testimony of the of, of the surviving crew of the mutiny. Um, you all of a sudden it opens this whole world up of of not just about Newark Jackson but this whole world of kind of smuggling uh, a smuggling ring you start to to get to know the people who are on board you learn the names of everyone on board the ship and from there you can begin to start teasing out threads and we realize there's a lot more to this story and so with that in mind with all that information in hand we applied old north applied and I I served as the principal investigator for a uh, forest e mars Junior a chocolate history grant from the Mars Chocolate Corporation um, to further research the life of Jackson. Um, we received the grant, um, and we also received a matching grant uh, from the National Park Service, uh, the United States National Park Service, to, to conduct the research. Um, and this allowed us to, to really dig into Jackson and his life. Um, and so I ended up hiring a multinational team of researchers uh, in the Netherlands and Boston, um, and then did some research myself to begin investigating not just the life of New York Jackson, but the, the kind of smuggling ring that it uncovered. For the modern listener, it's really strange to hear chocolate framed as sort of the entry into this world of intrigue of, of smuggling and murder and mutiny. How did Boston first come to be acquainted with chocolate? How, how, how did Boston get a taste for chocolate, this crop, this product of a very sort of narrow latitude in the, in the tropics? Yeah. So before, uh, Europeans went to the Americas, they had no knowledge that chocolate existed. It's, uh, it's a crop, uh, cacao, uh, is the, is what chocolate's made from is, is, um, is indigenous to the Americas, uh, to the Amazon rainforest, actually. Uh, but native peoples in the Americas began cultivating it probably about 4,000 years ago or so, if not more. Um, and it spread across the kind of equatorial zone. So out of the Amazon uh, basin, up into northern South America, the Guianas, uh, Venezuela, Colombia, and into Central America, uh, and into the, the Caribbean a little bit as well. Um, and it became a delicacy. So the Aztecs drank large amounts of what they would call refer to as chocolatl, uh, which is a, a, a drinking chocolate. Um, uh, the Mayans used cacao beans as currency. And so when Europeans first encounter indigenous people, especially the Mayans, so Columbus on his, I believe, second voyage encountered Mayan peoples, um, out in the, in the, in the Caribbean and he, they encountered cacao. Uh, once the, 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 the conquest of Mexico, um, Europeans gained a taste for it. They began cultivating it. So, so much so that by the early 17th century, chocolate's pretty well known in Europe. Um, and in over time, uh, very similar to say sugar or something, um, more and more Europeans begin consuming it and, and European colonists in the Americas, uh, Africans, uh, everyone kind of around the Atlantic basin began consuming chocolate in larger amounts. 
Nevertheless, um, even as it was becoming a kind of everyday product throughout, it's still kind of exotic um, in the in, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and so we know, for example, uh, at first arrived, the first references to chocolate in Boston are in the 1660s uh, of people importing it and, and, and consuming it that way. Um, chocolate's largely consumed as a drink in, in this time period. It, it's sweetened with sugar, uh, sometimes mixed with milk, sometimes with water, depending on where you are in Boston, it would have been mixed with milk. Um, and with sp- various spices, uh, cinnamon, cloves, anise, uh, you know, orange peel, things like that. Um, so it's this kind of spicy, rich drink. It, it, it's very good. Um, there's a few brands that have rep- replicated the taste of it. it, it it's quite tasty. Um, but it is, is largely consumed as a, as a drink. Um, and what people would do is they would, they would buy it either in, in as a drink, um, you know, and serve to them in a shop. Uh, and that's how Newark Jackson uh, served chocolate. Uh, or it would be bought in, in bars and bricks that would be, could be shaved down and mixed with water or milk. Um, and Jackson sold that as well, kind of wholesale. New York Jackson did not own a chocolate shop. He owned a shop that sold chocolate. So he, he sold a lot of other goods, cloth, uh, things like that, uh, pots and pans, all that, in addition to chocolate. And so what, it, what the chocolate required was an extensive amount of, uh, of work once it r- arrived because it arrived in Boston as what, what would be called cocoa. So these, so when cacao is grown, it grows in pods. Um, and those pods, uh, inside of it are, are the cacao seeds essentially. And so you, you cut out the seeds from the pod and you leave them to dry and to, to ferment a little bit. And those are packed and that's co- cocoa. Those are then, uh, they're ground down into, into chocolate and they're, they're mixed in with the spices and sugar and milk and all that to make, to make a drink. And that's chocolate. So grinding those beans down is the process of making chocolate. Um, so all of that work would have had to been done in the shop. And so who, who would have done that? Well, Newark Jackson owned three enslaved people, um, uh, Boston, Wareham, and, and a woman named, they were both men and a woman named, uh, Siller or Siler, uh, d- depending on how you want to pronounce it or Scylla, possibly if, if the New England accent holds true. Um, and, they were probably the ones doing that work. It's not easy work, right? To, to grind this down. Um, and then you have to reform it into bars, which would then be turned into, uh, to, to drinking chocolate or the bars would have to be packaged and sold. And so it's quite a bit of work and they would have been the ones doing it. Um, more likely not in the shop. Um, and then Amy Jackson, while he's gone, would have been, been running the shop and overseeing those three enslaved people performing the work of, of preparing it. When I think of making chocolate in New England, I think a generation or maybe two generations later of the chocolate mill on uh, the lower Neponset that eventually becomes Baker chocolate, mm-hmm. um, where all that pressing and grinding cacao into chocolate was done by water wheels. Yes. And in the 1730s in Newark Jackson's shop, it would have been done by enslaved black people. Yes. I mean, they, he had a chocolate mill, right? But it's a hand grinder that would have been run by enslaved people. And so the European, so Europeans and Euro-Americans very quickly get a taste for this. It, it's sweet. It, it's, it's, it's ref, kind of, you know, all the things we associate with hot chocolate, they, they would have too. Um, it, it's just kind of a, a nice uh, beverage, um, and, and different for various reasons. Um, that said, it was a relatively, it, despite it becoming increasingly common, um, largely because of cultivation, um, it, the, the, the Europeans began, uh, essentially attempting to match 
mass produce it, grow it in, in large quantities uh, using oftentimes forced labor, either the forced labor of indigenous people uh, in Spanish America, but also largely enslaved labor, um, especially in what's today Venezuela. Uh, but you also, by the early 18th century, begin to see cacao spread to uh, the Guianas um, and to few of the islands in the in the West Indies. Um, and so Suriname's a major grower of cacao by the 1730s. The thing is, it's such a valuable crop, though, um, and there's such a demand for it that there is this movement by European imperial powers, be they Spain or the Netherlands or Great Britain, to limit the, uh, the ability to purchase it. So they essentially want to prevent uh, outsiders from buying it directly from the source. They want to, say, if you're the Spanish, you want to import it uh, from Venezuela to Spain, tax it, and then sell it to the British, uh, right? You want to you want to collect the tax revenues off of it. You want to centralize the the revenues from it. Um, and most uh, most empires had passed laws uh, uh, regarding the the these sorts of commodities, sugars, another one, molasses, coffee, um, that they don't want a lot of trade from outside their own empire. Um, or and so they want to encourage trade within the empire because they're afraid of losing wealth. A mercantile system that would be familiar to people who've read about the, say, the Boston Tea Party. Exactly. It's the exact same economic system, uh, the kind of mercantilism um, that that drives this kind of desire to control the flow of commodities. And so what this means is it incentivizes smuggling. It incentivizes uh, people flagrantly violating a law because who wants to pay all of these import and export duties on stuff when you can just sail directly to the source? There's very few enforcement mechanisms in place. So, so yeah, so uh, what, what seems to be such a kind of everyday product to us, chocolate, is actually could uncover this larger story of, of smuggling and imperial entanglements uh, and all that. A quarter century ish after your book takes place, smuggling is going to become a lot more identified as a patriotic activity in British North America as people are evading the uh, Board of Trade. How did somebody choose to be a smuggler earlier in the 18th century, in the 1730s or 40s, when our Captain Jackson was more active? It's, it's so smuggling is going to be significantly less uh, political. I, it, it's I, I, probably not the best way to phrase it. Uh, the, the better way to, to phrase it is that it, it's not going to be political in the same way, right? It's not going to be associated with with the sort of a, of a revolutionary movement as it would become in the 1760s and 1770s. Um, but it, it, and of course, it is an inherently political act. But the to understand smuggling and, and say why people would engage in it um, is to to recognize a, a couple of factors. Factors. The, the the first factor being that it is so ubiquitous in this world. You you can't live anywhere in the Americas in the in the 18th century, 17th, 18th century, and not not live in a world of smuggling, not not encounter smuggled goods in your everyday life, not be involved in the trafficking of some of those smuggled goods. It's just the because it's so ubiquitous. There, these commodities are always flowing, and smuggling gives access to things you might not otherwise be able to get. And and I think chocolates the, the the best example of that. If you legally bought chocolate in Boston, it would have to go from Venezuela, where it would be taxed by the Spanish to Spain. It would then be sold to Great Britain and taxed again, and then taxed again when it's exported to the colonies. And those taxes would essentially remove the ability to consume that from the vast majority of people. So if you want this stuff, you buy smuggled goods. This, this is kind of, so, so for a lot of people to get the things they want in the world, they 
they just, you know, they, they engage in this world of smuggling. For the actual smugglers, someone like Newark Jackson, there, there's a few things going on. The, the, the first is that he, he grew up as a, as a sea captain. So he would have started at sea or he was a sea captain. And so growing up, he would have gone to sea as a very young boy, 10, 11 years old, if not younger. And he, the, the captain he served under probably was a smuggler, right? And so he's inculcated very early on into this world to the point it's probably an unthinking decision. But if he would step back and think about it, um, there, I think you would see actually, um, a, a couple of things. One, he, he, what a tendency might be to think that he's less than loyal to Great Britain because he's violating their trade laws. That's not the case of all, at all. He, he kind of views his loyalty as slightly different. He views these laws as an inconvenience or perhaps a suggestion, the way we view speed limits. Um, right? We, we all speed on the highway. This is something similar. Um, the other thing is that we have to ask, where does his loyalties lie? Certainly, he's a loyal British subject, and and you can see that in his life and in his, the the books he reads and, and things like that. But he's also he's a Bostonian first and foremost, and he envisioned himself very much as a Bostonian. And if we want to talk about patriotism, this is a good example of it because he would have seen himself as providing chocolate to Boston, to his fellow townsmen and women. And of course, he's profiting off of it, but he is providing them a good and service um, that the British Empire is trying to restrict as a whole. So his loyalty is very local. Uh, and it, it's to the people he knows in, in Boston, by and large, and maybe a few other business associates around the Atlantic. But for him, by and large, this is a he, he's serving Boston's needs by smuggling. And I think that's a way a lot of smugglers kind of view what they're doing. They're serving local needs. You say that he has this very sort of narrow local loyalty to Boston. Do you know whether he was from Boston? I know that by 1735 and some of the documents you uncovered, he's being described as being of Boston, but that may not be the same thing. It's not. Actually, he's not from Boston. He was not born there. Um, I'm, the, the records don't show where he's from. This is, you know, uh, the, the crazy thing about the records we uncovered in this study is, you know, I can, I can tell you in grisly detail the, um, you know, a lot of things. I could tell you, uh, you know, how they're smuggling. I can, and the, the, the methods and things they're using and, um, and, and other, other piece of, of, of information. I can't tell you where he's born. The, the, the documents just don't exist. I have some speculation. I, I, I I, you know, I have some ideas. I think he's probably from Essex County, uh, North Shore, perhaps Marblehead or Gloucester. Um, there's a, there's a few reasons for that. Um, the other men in the smuggling ring were all Essex County men, um, or, or had ties to Essex County. So George Ladane, um, Getty Clark are both from Essex County. Um, and in his, and likewise in, in Jackson's probate inventory, it lists him as having a land grant in New Hampshire. And if you look up the, the origins of this land grant, it's granted to veterans of the uh, campaign to capture Port Royal and what's today Nova Scotia. Um, it was a 1711 military campaign. Um, and they got a land grant in New Hampshire for their service. And that's given to largely Essex County men. And uh, some of the recipients of that had the surname of Jackson. So I, I kind of wonder if he didn't inherit that from a father or an uncle or something like that who had served served. Um, but then again, I don't even know what year he was born in. I, he was kind of mid thirties, probably in 1743. Uh, but that's, that's all I really know. But he's, he's not from Boston, but he is by 1735 of Boston. And that essentially means that 
he's made Boston his adoptive home. He identifies with Boston by that time. Absolutely. Not only has he made his adoptive home, but he's he's recognized as a standing member of the community by everyone else in Boston. So he has essentially assumed the the rights and responsibilities of being. A, it's a reciprocal relationship uh, of of being uh, of Boston. And there's a a distinctive phrase, and I I don't have the book in front of me, but I believe you refer to him trying to establish a competency. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the listener? what it would mean to to try to create or establish a competency and then how that might also factor into his, his choice to engage in smuggling. Yeah. So, you know, a competency is a, a term that you see pop up in, in all across early America um, in the uh, 17th, 18th and into the 19th century, um, e- even early American, like in the early American Republic They're they're talking about, you know, building a competency. And it really means to establish an independent income for oneself or, or enough of an income to be an independent uh, actor in the world. And, and so it's a very it's a very vague term because the idea of a competency could differ from person to person to person. Person. So a farmer is going to have a very different idea of what his competency is, i.e., a little bit of land, uh, some uh, you know some skill, some craft skills to do work for neighbors, uh, that sort of thing. Versus someone say like Jackson, whose idea of a competency might be uh, significantly bigger, significantly larger. Right? He wants uh, he he might want uh, he, he may want you know to own ships. He may want to own um, or have access to various trade goods. Right? To to ensure that he has an end. Independent, uh, or a source of income that allows him to kind of live in an independent life. Sounds like almost what we would consider the phrase a self-made man today. It's sort of equivalent to establishing a competency then. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there is a little more of a communitarian focus on the idea of competency in, in the sense that like, why, why do you establish a competency? So you're not a, you know, so you're not a burden on the community that you're, you're able to uh, function as essentially as an independent adult uh, or independent man uh, in, in the community. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the thing is that I think the idea of a self-made man is, is because it, it does drive a sort of uh, historian to, if, have shown this, it drives a sort of, um, there, there's psychological implications to this, right? The, the, this is, this is what's driving a lot of anxiety of, of early Americans in moments of economic crisis. Are they going to lose their competency? Um, and, and it might cause them to engage in behaviors that, uh, that we certainly might consider morally, uh, ambiguous or, or, or even worse, right? Like smuggling, um, and it incentivizes that sort of behavior, but it also incentivizes things like owning enslaved people, uh, slave trading, right? This, this desire to establish this independent income might cause folks to, to turn a blind eye to, uh, to the, some of the, the, the morally questionable activities, even, even things that are morally questioned in their own time, certainly legally questioned in the case of smuggling, but things that, that they're, that are morally questionable. Um, it, it creates a, a deep drive, you know, to, to continuously, you know, borrow money to further expand your economic activities. So, you know, end up in a lot of debt. Um, th- these, these are all the sort of anxieties coming out of this desire to build a competency. Well, speaking of ending up in debt, you, at some point in your research, you did the the 18th century equivalent of pulling Newark Jackson's credit report. So what did that tell you about him as a sea captain? 
he's he's nearly insolvent by the by the time of the mutiny in 1743 it would be the short answer um he's he's borrowing significant sums of money and it's unclear to what ends he's he's doing this for um i i think it's to he he's his hands are in he like when i said you know i talk about competency building a lot of times what that means is your hands are like someone's hands are in a lot of different pots and that's certainly true of newark jackson because he's a sea captain that's like his main job his main but he's also he owns a shop in boston that's probably run by his wife Amy when he's because he's out of town as a sea captain so much. Right. Um, but he in that shop serves chocolate. But he also he's buying all sorts of real estate up in the north end of Boston, workshops, uh, you know, uh, dwelling homes, things like that. He's um, he's investing in other ventures. He's buying parts of or, or pieces of ships, like he's buying you know a share in, in a ship. So he owns half a ship at the time of his uh, type at the time of the mutiny. Um, and so what this so but as he's doing this he's overextending himself he's you know he's borrowing money so a lot of that real estate's actually mortgaged um a lot of his cargoes for his ships he's uh are collateralized by him ta- he's he's borrowing money to buy the cargoes and hoping you know it sells for enough to 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 service his his, his lenders uh he so yeah he's he's deeply deeply in debt um at the at the time of the mutiny um and, and you know the he, he's essentially insolvent um, I, I tried to calculate. It's probably uh, the debt's probably about one and a half times or so the value of, of his estate. Hmm. That that debt is part of competency building, right? He's so focused on building a competency for himself that uh, that this is causing him to turn a blind eye to debt. As Jackson is becoming more and more established as a ship captain, he's taking on more and more debt. At some point in the 1730s, maybe the mid 1730s. His name disappears from the official records of, of cargoes that arrive in Boston. And that's sort of the marker of going deeply into the world of smuggling, I guess. And that's about the time that he starts to really trade in Suriname. Before we go any further, we've, we've mentioned this colony a couple of times. So it's a place that our listeners probably don't know that well. Can you tell us just a, a quick overview of what life was like in colonial Suriname? Generally speaking, it was a hellscape for the vast majority of the population is how I would describe it. Um, so Suriname is, like I said, on the northeastern coast of South America, um, in, in, in the area of known as the Guianas. And it's today what is the country of Guyana, Suriname, and French Guiana. And what's interesting about this area is it, it's, it's essentially it's all rainforest. And so there's the, there's, there's highlands that separate the Guianas from the Amazon River Basin. And so these highlands, they drain both to the Amazon to the south, but also they drain north out of, out of South America. And so what really characterizes these, these places in the Guianas and, and Suriname certainly are, are all these rivers and the rivers all flow out to the Atlantic Ocean. And this is perfect for building a colony because it's essentially a highway out to the Atlantic. And so you just build your property right up next to the, to the, uh, to the river and, and you sail out. And the, the climate there is it's equatorial. And so it's great for growing tropical, uh, commodities, sugar, coffee, and cacao. Um, and, and so Europeans had taken interest in this very early on. Walter Raleigh writes a book about it in the 1590s. Um, and then in, in the case of Suriname, it's actually first settled by the English in the 1630s. Um, but then the Dutch take it over in 1667. Uh, it becomes a, a Dutch colony 
and they focus on developing it. Uh, and it very quickly uh, models the, the West Indian uh, co- colonial model, i.e. a very small population of free whites and a very large enslaved population. Um, the, the numbers, of course, change over time. But in the, in the 1740s, there's about 50,000 enslaved people live in Suriname and about 2,000 free people. Uh, that's including free uh, freed slaves and, and um, but also whites. Um, and... And so for those enslaved people, this is, it's, 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 it's hell. Um, it's, it's incredibly hot. It's incredibly, um, dangerous, right? This is, this is jungle. So you're talking about, um, all the things that live in the jungle, uh, uh, jaguars, uh, but also fire ants, um, uh, uh, the weather that is just, uh, you know, it rains a lot. It, 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 it's, it's conducive to, to mosquitoes and malaria. So it's a really a disease wise. Um, it, it's a bit of a, it, it's a, and, and whites also die in high rates. Um, it's a bit of a hellscape, as I said, um, but it's also incredibly lucrative. Uh, the, those commodities being produced using enslaved labor, the sugar, the coffee, the cow is, is incredibly valuable and Suriname is 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 generating lots and lots of wealth for uh, the the Netherlands. So Suriname's a place that legally and technically should not be trading with British sea captains like Newark Jackson and yet in the book you include a copy of a painting by John Greenwood that's called Sea Captains Carousing in Suriname. So who are these captains in the painting and, and what are they doing in the painting? What does this portray? In theory, uh, New England ship captains aren't supposed to be trading in Suriname. It's against the law for foreigners to be trading there. The problem was that, uh, that first of all, the foreigners came anyways. And in a place like Suriname, it's pretty easy to buy off colonial officials. Uh, but also, these foreigners are providing things that people need. And in the case of New Englanders going to Suriname, they're providing uh, – livestock, especially horses. Uh, they're shipping horses from New England to, uh, to Suriname. And there's horses there. They're riding horses. They're used in, um, to run mills. They're called Suriname horses. They're actually bred specifically for Suriname and they're transported on the ships. And so in 1704, the Dutch government kind of, uh, the, the Dutch government in Suriname, which is actually run by a private company. It's just this whole, uh, the whole layer of things that adds some confusion. Um, the Suriname is governed by this private company. They recognize that they just can't, they can't just say, have this blanket ban on foreign trade because it's happening anyways. So they might as well, you know, uh, you know, open the door a little bit because they do need stuff from these foreign traders. They want the salt cod. They want the livestock. They want the timber from New Englanders. So they open the door and they allow New Englanders to trade as long as they bring horses with them. And so what will happen is a lot of times you'll find, uh, you know, when a ship comes in, it always notes uh, in, the, in the records in Suriname how many horses are on board. And as long as they have a horse on board, they're allowed to to trade. But even that trade's really restricted. They're only allowed to trade agricultural goods uh, by and large. Um, and there's certain things that they, they cannot export. So they, they can't um, they can't export uh, uh, um, cacao. And they can't export coffee. They are allowed to export some types of sugar and molasses, but everything else they're not. So essentially they're allowed to bring horses and fish and timber. They can trade that in Suriname and they can buy sugar, molasses, and that's it. But the, the, the thing is though, you, the moment you open the door to the legal trade, all that illegal trade is going to be happening right beside it. Uh, and that's exactly what happens here. And so this, this trade grows dramatically throughout the 18th century. Um, the horses do keep arriving. Over 30,000 horses are, are, are bred in, in New England and, and sold to Suriname over the course of the 18th century. Um, a significant number of, uh, um, 
uh, a significant number of uh, of of the foreign trade. Uh, like it's like three quarters of the foreign trade in Suriname, which is the bulk of its shipping is actually New England merchants uh, trading there. And so this brings us to that painting, John Greenwood's Sea Captains Cruising in Suriname. Uh, John Greenwood was a Boston-born painter. Um, and in the early 1750s, Boston's economy, or uh, yeah, early 1750s, Boston's economy was not doing so hot. So he moved to Suriname to look for patrons. Um, and then his idea is he'd stay in Suriname for not very long, get some commissions, make a bit of cash, and then go on to Europe to master his craft. He had not learned perspective and some other parts of painting yet. The thing is, though, that he gets there and he ends up staying for five years because the money's really good. And he, he makes something like uh, like 3,100 pounds, which is an insane sum of money in the 18th century uh, by the time he left. But he he's, he's commissioned to paint this, uh, this portrait by two Rhode Island ship captains. So this painting, and, and if you, you take a look at it, I, I hope you can link to it, Jake. Yeah, I will include this in the show notes. Yeah, because it's it's a wonderful painting. It's it's not particularly well done per se. It's like I said, he's still learning perspective, but it's these New England ship captains. Just they 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 have the upstairs of a tavern in Paramaribo, the capital of Suriname, and they're just profusely drunk. Um, parting it up. They're being served by enslaved people. And it shows the sort of lifestyle that these, these men led when they were in Suriname, that, that they're completely comfortable there. They're, they, they're, they're associating with each other while they're there. The, uh, they, you know, all of these things. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks for the longest time thought that this was supposed to be some kind of implicit critique of, of these captains. The thing is, it was commissioned by the merchants. They, 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 they saw this as humorous, their behavior in Suriname and the, cause it, it's part and parcel of the wealth they were making while they were there. So when did Newark Jackson first voyage to Suriname? His, his first documented voyage, we have 1736, um, and there's a, a record from 1738 suggesting another voyage, and then we have the 1743 voyage on, on the rising sun, um, but there are probably more voyages. So in the mid-1730s, he begins going to Suriname. What sorts of goods is he taking both legally and then uh, below board on these, these voyages to Suriname? And other than cacao, what is he hoping to, to come home with? Yeah, so he's taking a mixed cargo. Um, uh, the, he's taking all the produce of New England. So salt cod, uh, other types of salted fish, uh, which they're getting from largely from the fishing banks in Newfoundland, uh, buying, um, in, uh, from Essex County fishermen and, and fishing, uh, trades, um, timber, all sorts of timber from, from Northern New England. Once again, um, Agricultural goods, um, so corn, apples, salt beef, salt pork, stuff like that, grown and produced in New England. Um, also, um, so probably some cider, things like that. Um, so that mixed cargo, but he's also taking stuff that that's all technically legal, as I, as I mentioned, um, livestock as well. So his 1736 voyage, he took a horse. Um, there's all these, there's all sorts of stories about taking horses on, on board ship. It generally wasn't a good idea. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but we could talk about that more if you want. Uh, but you take horses. Um, but they, also, so that's the legal goods, but he'd also take manufactured goods from Great Britain, especially cloth, um, and even manufactured goods from New England. And so one of Th- Newark Jackson's, the, the executors of, of his will, of his estate, was a man named Thomas Griniff. And Thomas, Thomas Griniff made instruments. He was an instrument maker, uh, navigational instruments, compasses, sextants, things like that. Famous. You can still actually find them today. Um, and he would take those as well. Now, both of those, the, the cloth from Great Britain and the, the navigational instruments were technically illegal. Um, also, a number of spy gla- like eyeglasses and things that they bought in Britain. Um, those are technically illegal to trade, but he took them anyway 
employees and, and sold them. The other part of the cargo he took, um, and it, it's unclear from the earlier voyages, but certainly by, by 1743, uh, were enslaved people from West Africa. Many of these would have been picked up in the West Indies, most likely Barbados. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that more later and taken then to, uh, to Suriname. And it seems that over time, uh, this smuggling ring, which is, you know, using New England ships and ship captains, um, some uh, New England ship captains certainly and crews to go to Suriname to acquire cacao. Increasingly over time, they become more and more reliant on the trade in enslaved people. Um, in return for, for all of that mixed cargo of, of, of enslaved people, horses, whatnot, they are receiving, uh, cacao, coffee, molasses, sugar, um, also cloth. Uh, so they're taking a cloth you can get in Britain for cloth you can get in the Netherlands. Um, also, uh, Asian goods. Um, so, uh, tea, especially. Uh, tea, uh, porcelains from, from the East. And these are, are, you know, once again, that's illegal to export out of, out of Suriname. It's against the trade laws. It's, a, it's illegal to import into the British Empire, but they're doing it anyways. So on both ends, he's smuggling on both ends. So for somebody who's always sort of hovering on the brink of insolvency, who finances Captain Jackson's voyages to Suriname and other places? So how does he get the money to purchase trade goods, including enslaved Africans? So by the cargoes, um, they're on the ships, the, the, the owners of the ships, the merchants that hire them, they're, they're purchasing that. But he, he does have to pay for a lot of things out of pocket. He has to, anything he takes. So one of the perks of being a ship captain is you get what's called a private venture, which is a certain amount of cargo space that you can, you can use for your own purposes without, you don't have to pay freight fees or anything like that on. Um, so any of that cargo, he has to pay for himself. He has to pay his crew in advance and then hope the merchant pays him back for, for wages. Um, he has to pay any repairs on the ship. He has to he has to essentially pay for that first and then be reimbursed. And in fact, we have a lawsuit of Jackson suing a merchant who sent him on a voyage for not paying um, for for uh, wages and, and repairs on a ship. So he has to front a lot of the money. Um, and the thing is, the he he's only as long as he's always making enough to service the debts. It's only when something happened, right? That's when it shows that he's actually insolvent. Um, and, and and so he's always making enough to service the debts because he's making some commission off off cargoes. He's making wages, some depending on the type of voyage, either commission or wages. Um, he's he has his own private venture. He has his shop, so he is making money and enough to kind of service his debts. But in any way to expand his business, uh, he's having to borrow more and more and. And so in theory, over time, he would eventually come to own enough of the kind of means of, of maritime commerce, i.e. enough ships, enough, uh, you know, uh, he'd, enough commissions, things like that as a captain that he'd be able to pay off that debt and gradually himself transform into a, a creditor. But that doesn't happen. In the meantime, who's he borrowing that money from? All sorts of people. Um, so he, it's a, it's a veritable who's who of Boston's Anglican community. Um, it's, uh, James Smith, who's a very wealthy merchant, uh, in Boston. Uh, some names that the listeners probably feel familiar with. Peter Faniel was one of his, his creditors. Um, uh, actually, in fact, um, uh, a, about a 400 pound debt, which is a significant sum of money, uh, kind of comes to the surface, uh, shortly after the, the mutiny in 1743, um, between, uh, Faniel and, and, and uh, the firm of Faniel and Boughton now, who is Peter Faniel's business partner. So yeah, it's, it's, you read this list and you look at who are the leading merchants in Boston. It's 
it's Peter. Uh, it's like the it's like men like Peter Faneuil, James Smith, is these really prominent merchants, James Allen, uh, who were the the kind of in the middle decades of the 18th century were the the wealthy movers and shakers of Boston society. And you refer to to some of these uh, creditors as the Anglican elite. So these are folks that that Jackson would know through his network at. Christchurch or, or Old North Church. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's and it, it spans both the Anglican churches in Boston, King's Chapel, um, and and old, what's uh, Christchurch, which is today Old North. Um, old North's a younger congregation. Christchurch started in the 1680s. Uh, old North starts in 1723. And and the thing is that that so many wealthy merchants are at, are at King's Chapel um, that uh, like it's really hard for young merchants to afford a pew, for example, to, to buy a pew. So many of them move to Old. North um, to, to kind of as a kind of site of sociability, as a site of uh, where they can associate with each other and kind of flaunt their own wealth and status as pew owners. Uh, so they they go to Old North, but the, the connections in the Anglican community remain. After the book introduces us to the character of Captain Newark Jackson, as you build toward what's going to be his his final voyage in 1743. You introduce a few different sets of characters who are going to play into that 1743 trip to Suriname uh, in sort of the middle chapters of the book that are titled The Cartel, The Cargo, and The Crew. I'd like to also sort of bring in some of these supporting characters, starting with The Cartel. Off the top, I'd like to ask why you use the term that today we associate with cocaine smuggling to refer to this group who were smuggling cacao into Boston. I, I think you 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 answered the question. Um, it, <laughs> it was to be provocative, right? I, we're talking about a smuggling ring that um, trafficked enslaved trafficked human beings in addition to all these other goods in exchange for chocolate. And so using the term cartel, I wanted to imply a sort of nefariousness that we do associate with, say, cocaine trafficking today, uh, because that's that it is. It's a fairly nefarious business. And, and the, the sorts of behavior that these men were engaging in was fairly nefarious behavior. Not to put too fine a point on it, but at the time, trading in enslaved human beings wasn't itself illegal. What the illegal part was where they were taking them. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. In their world, these are respectable men. It's totally legal to to buy and sell people in this world. It's, it's just where they're buying and selling them is the issue or how they're buying and selling them. The group that you refer to as the cartel, there are basically three central members. You have, and in, in my head, and this, this, these aren't your terms, but in my head, I've been thinking of them as uh, the money man, the inside guy, and the brains of the operation. I mean, it's like it's like Goodfellas, right? <laughs> so in my mind, George Ledane, who's in charge of sort of the New England cartel operations, was the brains of the operation. What was he doing in the smuggling operation? And then how does it sort of his family history and his career up to that point bring him into this business? Yeah, he has this kind of interesting background. He's he's from Essex County. He's the one of the Essex County men. Um, Ladane is actually, as it sounds French, but it's actually um, uh, a surname from the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel. And if anyone knows that their Essex County history, that uh, in the in the 17th century, a sizable number of Jersey men ended up in Essex County as indentured servants and working in the fishing trade and everything like that. So if anyone knows the the um, Salem witch trials, Philip English, who was was kind of part of those trials and who's accused uh, of witchcraft. 
Lovecraft, he uh, he was uh, also a Jerseyman, and then Ladane is a descendant of Jerseyman. And what's interesting about the Jerseyman is they they they're 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 ethnically kind of French, uh, but they also but they speak both they speak a dialect of French, but they also speak English. Um, but they are committed and deeply deeply committed Anglicans. This is a really central part of their identity. They don't remain Catholic. They become deeply committed Anglicans. And so this kind of flexible identity when they come to New England, they largely assimilate uh, into and they become very wealthy merchants and and uh, and, uh, and craftsmen and traders and all that. Um, but they remain committed Anglicans. They never join the Congregational Church. And so that's that's a key part of George Ladane's identity is that he's an Anglican, um, which explains why he's uh, affiliated with Christ Church. But he also um, – he he's from uh, New, what's today Newburyport, which was then part of the town of Newbury. Um, he married a woman named Mary Adams in 1728, and she was the daughter of a Boston shipbuilder named Isaac Adams. And when Isaac Adams uh, passed away uh, in 1732, uh, his son Isaac Adams Jr. inherited the uh, the the shipbuilding operation. And you can see why you know having uh, being a smuggler and having a brother-in-law that owns a shipyard could be a really useful thing. And so this gives Ladane access to ships. Much like Jackson, we have we have a number of shipping records related to Ladane going back to the early 1730s that put him in Boston. He he moved there and and with his wife um, and his in laws um, in the in, in the late 1720s. And he's he's in the West Indies. We have him very early on, 1734, in Suriname in in records. He realizes the money that's to be made there, especially in cacao, but really in, in all the Suriname trade. And so, yeah, he kind of becomes the, I like that, that term, Jake, the brains of the operation, um, of hiring ship captains, uh, for this, uh, for this trade to Suriname, um, recruiting captains, recruiting, uh, probably helping to recruit crews, securing cargoes, uh, of New England goods. That's kind of what he's, he's up to. So then. For him to be able to secure these cargoes and hire the captains, he's got to be bankrolled. So the money man, again, my my term, so sorry if it's not how you would envision it, is Gedney Clark. And Clark is from, or he lives in Barbados. So what was Gedney Clark's connection to Boston, to these the, the money man and then the actual ship captains coming out of Boston? Yeah, I, I, I like to call Gedney Clark the godfather, uh, to continue <laughs> our, our mafia terms. Um, but Money Man's also good. Uh, Gedney Clark, uh, yeah, he's in, he, he's a merchant in Barbados. And if you didn't know any better, it would seem a very odd connection. Um, but he was actually born in Salem, Massachusetts. So he's another Essex County guy. Um, and as a, in the late 1720s, he moved to, uh, to Barbados. So early 1730s, he moved to Barbados and his, he's of a very wealthy family, the, the Clark family of Salem. And his mother was a Gedney, thus his name. So these two wealthy merchant families from Salem, he's the, he's like the son of, of these families and he wanted to get rich. So he moved to Barbados, which is what you would do. Uh, if you want to get rich, you move to the West Indies and there he married the daughter of a planter. Um, and so very quickly starts amassing, not only does he have his family wealth, um, not only is he a merchant, but he begins amassing plantations. As a plantation owner and as a merchant, he becomes very close with a man named Henry uh, Lascelles and Henry's brother, Edward Lascelles. These were men, they were the uh, customs collectors in, in Barbados, which uh, might be funny to think of a merchant engaged in smuggling, uh, being befriending the customs collectors, but that's because the customs collectors are smugglers too. 
And so he befriends this, the Lascelles and the Lascelles are once again, very wealthy family from Yorkshire and England. Um, they become involved, invest uh, in a lot of plantation. They own hundreds of, or I'm sorry, a, a number of plantations in, in the West Indies, hundreds upon hundreds of enslaved people in Barbados, Jamaica, and other places um, that work those plantations. So they're, they're filthy rich. And they realize that the big money in the West Indies trade isn't being on the ground in the plantations. You can make money, but the big money is doing consignment work as a major merchant house in London. And so in the mid-1730s, Henry LaSalle's uh, now you know good friends with Gedney Clark moves to London, and he begins investing in all of these sort of schemes that uh, that 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 Clark is all these kind of mercantile schemes that Clark's and merchant schemes that Clark's engaging in and one of those is his work with George Ladane to hire New England ship captains to go to Suriname so he's essentially being bankrolled uh, and doing bankrolling himself and then sort of the third member of this this cacao cartel is Edward Toadhill, who Tuttle. I like to think of Toddle, Edward Toddle, who I, I like to think of as the man on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so he actually lives in Suriname, I believe, right? Yeah. So he arranges the sale of these cargoes that are being brought in, whether they're legal or less than legal. How did he end up with a life that took him from New York City to Boston and then to Suriname? You know, he's a, he's a fascinating figure and probably the person I, I became most transfixed with in, in this project, um, and, and who he was and his background. Um, uh, so his, he's from, he's born in New York City. His father's a man named Jeremiah Tottle. And Jeremiah Tottle moved there shortly after the English conquest of, of New York or of New Netherland in 1664. Of course, New Netherland was a Dutch colony taken over by the English. And in, in typical, so he's this kind of small time, uh, Jeremiah Tottle, Edward's father, is this kind of small time English merchant who saw the opportunity and married a daughter, uh, Yannickin Decay, who was, uh, of, a daughter of one of these these wealthy Dutch families in New York City. And so thus joining the sort of English, you know, with the Dutch. And so Tottle's mother's Dutch. Uh, and, and so he grew up speaking Dutch in the household. And this is important. Uh, he's one of nine children. Um, and he's the second youngest. So there's not a lot of prospects for him in New York City. But his father, while, uh, while in New York City made, made a name for himself. He was an alderman and, and kind of, you know, made, was, became quite, uh, quite wealthy. And he made good friends with New York's Huguenot community. Um, including the Faniels. Uh, most importantly, uh, Benjamin Faniel, who was the father of Peter Faniel of Boston. And, and so much like uh, Peter Faniel uh, moving to Boston, um, uh, Edward Tottle did that as well. And so he, he went in part because of his father's Huguenot connections, but also because of his mother's side. On his mother's side, he had a cousin who married a man named Abraham Wendell, uh, who was a wealthy uh, Dutch merchant from uh, from a Dutch, wealthy Dutch family from Albany, New York. And the Wendells moved to, to Boston in, in the 1720s. And so Edward Tottle kind of because of these family connections himself ends up in Boston. And so, and of course, the, this Wendell families of Oliver Wendell Holmes, that famed New England family, this is this is that family, if, if you're familiar with your New England history. They're, they become very, very wealthy merchants, much like Peter Faneuil in, in Boston. And so Edward Tottle, he, he settles in Boston and there he meets George Ladane. Uh, we don't, I don't know the context. We can never find the context of their meeting. But what we do know is from all the records that George Ladane and Edward Tottle were quote, 
good friends. All the records in English and Dutch, they all refer to them as good friends. And this is a really important term for the 18th century because the the way that people would speak is that the term friend was thrown around quite casually. So essentially your friends were people you did business with. So that, that modifier, good, to be a good friend, that really mattered because what it meant was that that person your good friend would put the relationship ahead of the business interest. A friend couldn't be trusted to do that, but a good friend could be trusted to do that. Edward Tottle and George Ledain become good friends. Edward Tottle uh, is joins Christ Church. He's he's some sort of merchant in Boston. And then in 1737 or so, his wife passes away. They have three uh, minor children, um, but. Tottle, uh, it seems that family networks, uh, either to the Wendells uh, or, or to the Faneuils, something spurred Edward Tottle to move to Suriname in 1738 um, without his kids. He actually leaves them in Boston. Um, and that's a whole other story. Um, but he, he moves to Suriname. He has the language skills because he grew up speaking Dutch. He has these connections to these New England merchant houses and he, he kind of lands in Suriname, immediately marries a widow of, of who owns plantations. Um, so he, you know, ingratiates himself in that, uh, in that, in that world. Um, but then he also essentially becomes an agent, uh, representing the interest of New England merchants across, uh, the, all of them who are trading to, to Suriname. Um, and, and so, yeah, he's the, he kind of, he's the, the inside guy. Um, and he becomes very, not just, you know, not as only is he an, an agent well known by all these New England merchants going to Suriname, he becomes well respected in the, in the white community in, in Suriname as well. He, he becomes a burger, which is like a, a citizen, the equivalent of, of a citizen. It's a, an honorific. He holds a couple minor offices, um, until he, he, and he actually died in Suriname in 1748. So he, he kind of remained there as this agent on the ground, um, facilitating trade. Between, between New England and, and Suriname, and especially uh, with George Ledain, his good friend. And, and when George Ledain joins forces with Gedney Clark in the, in the chocolate smuggling ring, uh, he's the guy that's kind of making it all work on the ground in Suriname. It's funny, as you describe the term good friend and that the Tottle is, is Ledain's good friend, I'm reminded of nothing so much as uh, the movie Donnie Brasco and uh, Johnny Depp's character <laughs> explaining the difference of a friend of mine. He's a friend of ours. Is he a friend of ours? No, he's a friend of mine. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's it's a very similar term because in correspondence, they refer to each other as friends. But these guys, they actually, a lot of them hate each other, but they're calling each other their friend. It's because they're doing business together. So now we have Ladane and Clark and Toddle essentially set up in business together. And whether they're working through Newark Jackson or I'm sure one of a number of other sea captains. There's this exchange of money and goods between British Boston, Dutch Suriname, and French Cayenne is thrown in there, mm-hmm. and then back to British Barbados. Can you describe how these men would have been moving money and goods between these different ports to give their cargoes at least a veneer of legitimacy when they get back to Boston? The, the movement is key, um, and, and to keep things moving and to have the paperwork denoting that movement. And so, um, so yeah, so they would, they would, one of the things the captains did is they actually, most of them departed from, they would go to Barbados and then board a different ship. And, and so a lot of those ships were built in, 
in New England, but then were kind of their their home port was 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 Bridgetown and Barbados. Um, so they wouldn't use the they wouldn't use their New England ships. They would use their uh, West Indian ships, which uh, they use a de- they use different types of ships too. They tend to be a little bit bigger. Um, so that was the first thing, right? So they were not use uh, they would not risk a, a, this long voyage. It's rather these shorter voyages from Barbados to to Suriname and then to Cayenne, which is right next door to Suriname uh, to its east. And, and so that, that was the first step. So they would, they would kind of, they would kind of change out ships. Think about kind of like a getaway car, right? They would, they would have these special ships they were using. But they would also they would also always list their destination as Cayenne, and and it's it's unclear why. So Cayenne is the capital of French Guiana. It's what Cayenne peppers name for it. That's perhaps its most famous. The, the thing it's most famous for. Um, it's a, it's it's a, no longer, but it used to be an island at the at the mouth of a river on the coast of, of French French Guiana, and it was its capital. And French in French Guiana, uh, it's really un, undeveloped. There's like five thousand people there in the 1730s and 40s. Um, it's it's neglected by France, and so the the question is, you know, if you present that paperwork to a customs official that says you're coming or going to Cayenne, do they even know where that is? Do they, you know, where is that place, or they just kind of turn a blind eye to it because uh, it was technically illegal to be trading there? Um, but but if you don't know where it is, right, uh, you just kind of you kind of shrug it off. Um, and it also it, it made the whole process seem much more convoluted because if you, if you go to Suriname and you come from Barbados. And then you go to Suriname, but it says, you know, your paperwork is, uh, is, is you're going to Cayenne, but you're not going back to Barbados. That what's going on with that? And then the, the ship captains themselves throw confusion into the mix. Because if you look at the entry of, of the rising sun in Suriname, it doesn't note that the ship's from Barbados. It notes that Newark Jackson is from Boston. So you, it's, it, it creates this really convoluted situation with, with all these sort of unknowns. And, and that's, that's deliberate. You, you don't know where people are coming or where they're going. And so it's just easier to kind of stamp the paperwork, you know, or ignore it and just kind of move on. And if you happen to be friends with a semi-corrupt uh, customs official, it helps them to just look the other way if it's a complex chain of paperwork. Exactly. Right? That's that's also key, right? So it, it creates cover for those customs officials uh, to to claim ignorance, to claim duplicity, right? That they they can also cover themselves uh, using because of this. So it's incredibly complicated. And the fact that they the many of these ships were going to Cayenne, so the Rising Sun was headed to Cayenne. We we know a number of the ships went to Cayenne as well. Um, and it, it makes sense because it was a it was a pretty good market for a lot of these goods because it was so neglected from by France. So you use an interesting phrase in the book. You say that essentially, as the cargoes are being laundered through this complex paper chain of of movement through different ports, the people involved are also they're laundering their reputations through Old North. What did you mean by, by that turn of phrase? It allows then for when that stuff lands in Barbados, it can become Barbadian uh, goods and, and thus laundered and, and, you know, kind of launder it through there. So thus it's legal to be sold in the British Empire. And, and that's exactly what the, the Old North is serving the same purpose for the, for the personalities. Even by the standards of the 18th century, the, this is kind of duplicitous. It's shady. It's relying upon, you know, corrupt officials. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, taken individually, uh, trafficking enslaved people, right? Taking individually in the 18th century, none of these are kind of morally condemnable. Uh, taken together, though, they, they don't look so great. Even by 18th century standards, something's wrong with the character of those engaging in all these activities and doing all these things. Um, so what 
an institutional affiliation like Old North does, it allows these folks to, uh, to, pro- to, pro- to be standing good members of the community. And so this is Old North serves a really important function for this smuggling ring. All the, the folks in Boston uh, who, who were in Boston at any point, so everyone we've talked about so far, save Gedney Clark, so Newark Jackson, George Ladane, Edward Tottle, were all members of Christ Church. Mm-hmm. They all donated money to the steeple. They all, uh, George Ladane and Newark Jackson owned pews. Other captains hired by, by George Ladane were members of Old North and donated money. And so by, by being ch- church members, by, uh, by donating money and time, this allowed them to kind of launder their reputation through this institution. Because it, you start to question George Ladane's character, then you say, Oh, but he owns pew 13 at Old North. He's donated all this money to the steeple. Maybe he's not, maybe he's not such a bad guy. Maybe he, he's doing what a good community member should do. Um, right. He's, he's participating in, 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 in society in a proper way. And you guys even see this with, with, with Gedney Clark. Uh, Gedney Clark donated a hundred pounds sterling, which is an, a very large sum of money in the 18th century to purchase Old North's Peel of Bells in 1743. And George Ladane secures that donation. So we have a thank you letter from the, the vestryman of Old North to Gedney Gedney Clark, um, and also thanks to George Ladane for securing the donation. So all of these men are using this these sort of institutional affiliations uh, and philanthropy to kind of launder their reputations uh, as upstanding members of the community. So now we have the captain and we have the cartel. As you build towards sort of the, the climax of the book in the 1743 voyage to Suriname, you also introduce... Uh, the cargo on that voyage. And of course there was cacao on board and there were other goods on board, but obviously the focus is the human cargo on board. So how many newly enslaved people were on the rising sun for this, this 1743 trip? We don't know. That's the the short answer. Probably uh, about uh, fifty, I I, I estimate, um, based on the, some of the evidence we have. Um, one of the 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 frustrating parts, to step back for a second from the history itself to the to the research, is um, the evidence we have of uh, of this part of the, the voyage. It, it was a slave trading voyage. I, I'm I'm fully uh, I, I lay it out in the book. I'm fully convinced of it. But there's no actual evidence that says this was a slave trading voyage. There's all this circumstantial evidence surrounding it. Um, but what most of the cargo of, of, of the, that 1743 voyage on the rising sun was, uh, was enslaved Africans, about, about 50 of them, the certainly the most valuable cargo, um, that had been, uh, transshipped from, uh, from West Africa to Barbados and then put on board the rising sun to be taken to, to Suriname. Um, the the evidence we do have of this um, is there was an insurance policy filed for the Rising Sun. It was not common to uh, insure voyages, smuggling voyages like this. So the fact there's an insurance policy already suggests um, that, that something's a bit off. Um, the that it's different. I shouldn't say it's off. It's it's different. Um, the insurance va- policy was also what's called a value policy, where it valued the cargo before it departed. Um, and there's reference later to the the quote ship and the Negroes being the value cargo once again strongly suggesting that uh, that this was uh, this was a slave trading voyage primarily or at least what was insured was the slave trading voyage um, 
there, there's, there's a number of other pieces of evidence as well. That, that, that being one of the main ones. Um, but the, the other one is that, that there's an inventory taken of the ship, um, in 1743. Um, and there are 15 enslaved people on board. 13 of them are children, two of them young, young adult men, probably late teenagers, um, early twenties. Who are also on board the ship, uh, who would probably were the remainders from the, the smuggling voyage of Suriname that they, who they couldn't sell. And so the, the question for me as a historian and, and writing this is if we're going to center the different experiences of the people involved in this, in this voyage, uh, Newark Jackson, George Ledane, Gedney Clark, um, Edward Tottle, we also have to, uh, and, the, and the rest of the crew we're talking about in a bit, um, we also have to center the experiences of those enslaved people, try to envision what their their experiences were like. And this is really hard when we only have one piece of concrete evidence, the, the ship inventory, uh, and then a bunch of circumstantial evidence. So how do we do that? How do we piece that together? Well, we have to look at the activities of Gedney Clark. We have to look at the activities of the Lascelles, who I mentioned earlier, and, and just kind of, and, 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 you know, put this in, in, into its context to try to figure out who these, uh, who, who these, these enslaved people were. In some of my recent episodes, I, I've realized that primary sources about slavery in, in 18th century New England, especially, but I'm sure other places make it a lot harder to use primary sources to talk about any enslaved person's lived experience than just sort of broad terms about the institution. So knowing that, how did you try to fill in the lives either from scraps of primary sources or from sort of parallel lives, what, what we know about other people's uh, experience of being enslaved. That's the one thing, right? I kind of understood the, the broader institution, what slavery was like, uh, say, in Suriname um, and, and what that experience was like. But was the was the experience in Suriname different than in other colonies or other slave societies? Yes. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, you know, it, it's, it's most similar to that in the West Indies. I, I talked about, you know, Suriname is this kind of hellish place earlier. Um, it, it, it was, but it, but it was, you know, long hours in the sun growing these, these cash crops, um, you know, driven to, to death, worked to death, literally in many cases, um, subject to wanton abuse from both whites and from, from drivers meant to extract labor. Um, yeah. So in that sense, there's a, um, yeah, it's very, it's very similar to say West Indian slavery. It's very different from, from what's happening in, in New England. Certainly there's, there's abuse and all that in New England, but just the nature of this, this is plantation slavery. So, you know, large scale, uh, large groups of enslaved individuals, uh, working on, on growing cat crash cash crops. Um, so yeah, that, so that was an important kind of piece of the, of it. Um, and, and Suriname has some unique features. It's, it's kind of how big the plantations are, the sort of drainage system that's used to, to make sure the land's fertile. And, and remains uh, doesn't flood, um, so there are some unique features. But but also, uh, you know, institutionally, but also what all the people involved in the smuggling ring were all connected to slavery. So what were their connections to slavery? And most importantly, to answering this question was the activities of Gedney Clark, who we have we have a lot of records uh, of his slave trading activities. So it shouldn't be surprising that he's also you know selling uh, enslaved people on board the on board the Rising Sun, selling them in Suriname, because he's selling enslaved people from Barbados to Virginia, Barbados to South Carolina, Barbados to other parts of the Guianas, uh, and to Jamaica and to New York, right? So we have all of this record of him as a slave trader in the exact same time period. He becomes um, one of the key suppliers, despite it being illegal, to the Dutch colonies to the west of Suriname. So Berbice, um, Essequibo, and Demerara. Uh, he becomes a chief supplier 
supplier there in the 1750s and 1760s, uh, trafficking enslaved people. So that alone kind of suggests that, yes. And so, so what did his slave trading activities look like? Um, and, and then to, to make the West African p- picture, I looked to the Lascelles and the Lascelles, uh, in addition to doing all sorts of consignment, buying and selling sugars and coffee and cacao and all that, they're also invested in, in slave trading, um, and had devised a, f- a scheme called the floating factory, uh, which was off, uh, the West African port of Anamobo, uh, which is in today's Ghana. And so they, they stationed a ship that was there permanently, uh, meant to be anchored permanently just south of, in the water off of Anamobo. And essentially it meant that ship captains could stop there, fill their holds with, with captives and, and move on. So they would prevent, that meant the captains wouldn't have to go from port to port to port buying captives before crossing the Atlantic. So this made things a lot faster, uh, a lot less deadly for the, the captains and crews involved in the, in, in, in slave trading. Um, it, the, the scheme falls apart, uh, but but not before the voyage of the rising sun. So some of the last voyages uh, from the floating factory uh, were in early 1743. And I, I speculate and I, uh, that many of the captives on board uh, the rising sun were from some of these final voyages from the, from the floating factory. And so that then, okay. So if they're captured in, in Anamobo, uh, what, what is, what, what's that like, you know, what was that experience of being captured? And, and we have narratives. So, uh, we have the narrative of a man named Venture Smith, who was enslaved in Connecticut, actually, uh, and later sat down to relate his uh, his life story. And uh, Smith talks about being captured in the hinterlands of Anamobo and being sold there uh, as a boy. He's about eight to ten years old. Uh, of being sold. So now we have an experience of a young man, of a boy being captured in the same region as many of the captives on board the rising sun. And, and like I said, the, the ones, the captives we know most about were children. So Venture Smith's narrative can be used as a bit of a stand in for their experiences. By the time this human cargo is loaded onto the rising sun, they've already been at sea for weeks or, or maybe more from the coast of Ghana to Barbados, right? Yeah, probably months. Uh, my my guess is there was a short period of convalescence in Barbados. They'd have been offloaded, put into what's called a pen, P-E-N, um, in the, uh, like, probably Getty Clark owned. They would have been fed um, and, and, and watched. Some of them may have been sold to plantations locally, um, but they would have been put in a holding pen until they would be reloaded on the rising sun. Now, how long? Uh, a week, two weeks, a month? I'm, I, we don't, I don't know. What would the conditions on the rising sun have been like? It sounds like as a smaller ship, it was different than sort of the, the sketches or diagrams we've all seen of you know, a, a West African slave voyage. Definitely. So the, the, it was, it was both, uh, in some ways it would have been like much worse. In some ways it wouldn't have been uh, much better. Now we have to remember we're talking about slave trading. So it's all relative here. It's all horrible. <laughs> um, but, uh, but being put on the right board, the rising sun, 50 people on board a ship that was probably 70 ish tons. So not very big, uh, a cargo hold, you know, that's, uh, that it's the tallest is nine feet by 60 some odd feet long, nine feet tall by 60 feet tall. Um, it, it would have been very crowded. Um, much probably even perhaps more crowded than the transatlantic vessel. But, and they would have had to squeeze in between all the other cargo the Rising Sun was carrying, the, the barrels of fish, the bolts of core, you know, cloth, the timber, all that stuff they're carrying. But on the other hand, they wouldn't have been chained. Uh, they, because the, the thing is, uh, chains and, and 
handcuffs and ankle cuffs, those create marks that, uh, in the voyage to Suriname from the rising sun would have been very short, five, five to seven days at most. Um, and so, you know, plenty of time for those sorts of uh, wounds to develop from chains, but not to heal. Um, and the food would have been much better. They would have had, they would have taken on fresh water in Barbados. Uh, Jackson would have been able to buy fresh produce in Barbados. Um, so, so it wouldn't have been just a diet of, you know, preserved carbohydrates uh, or yams or, or whatever they're, they're feeding, um, their, or salt rations. It would have been a much healthier diet as well. Uh, and, it, and it's a much shorter voyage would be the key. And just to be clear, both the, the improved provisions and, the and not chaining them to avoid visible wounds neither of those are about kindliness they're about resale value absolutely it's about it's about preservation preserving the cargo for sale uh, yeah absolutely on that depressing note um so we we've introduced our captain our cargo our cartel the thing that's that's missing to take us up to the sort of the the deadly mutiny that's going to happen in just a few short pages is the rest of the crew. So for the 1743 smuggling voyage with this human cargo of about 50 people on board, Newark Jackson's going to be the captain. George Ledane is going to be on board, but then there's also a larger crew. Uh, Everybody from the captain's boy to the first mate. Who were the rest of the crew members on this voyage? So all told, there are probably about there are eleven people on board the ship, and so there's Newark Jackson, the captain, George Ledane, the supercargo or merchant who's in charge of uh, of managing the cargo. Um, but in addition to them, you have. Uh, uh, Ladane has a clerk, a guy named John McCoy or John McKay, depending on the, the record you look at. Um, you have a cabin boy, uh, John Skinner, uh, who, who ser- who's essentially like Jackson's apprentice and Ladane's kind of a servant. You have, uh, two, uh, two, they're referred to as lads in the documents. They're young sailors, um, uh, named, um, Josiah Jones and Henry Deveries. Uh, Deveries is from Boston. Uh, don't know about Jones. Um, you have the ship's mate, William Blake, the ship's bosun, or spelled boatswain, but uh, pronounced bosun, uh, John Shaw. And you have three able-bodied sailors uh, who were recruited in Barbados to serve on board the ship. Uh, hired by Jackson and whose uh, names were Ferdinand da Costa, Thomas Perea, or uh, I'm sorry, Joseph Perea and Thomas Lucas. And the, the latter three are referred to as Portuguese sailors. Um, and, and so they were the, they were the, what are called able-bodied seamen. These are men with, they have decades of sailing experience between them and would have been uh, kind of the, the, the rough and tumble sailors on board the ship. So why would, New England officers have hired and brought on board sailors from such an incredibly different background than themselves. My guess is that these three men, Joseph Perea, Ferdinand Acosta, and Thomas Lucas, were had been slave ship sailors. They had experience handling enslaved cargoes. Uh, they had probably been discharged by a slave ship in Barbados. This was incredibly common for slave ship captains trying to save money, uh, would discharge crew members so they wouldn't have to pay them um, once they got to once they got to Barbados. And my guess is these had been and these 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 are men, um, two of them are, are mixed race, uh, Thomas Lucas. Lucas and Joseph Perea are mixed race, uh, uh, but they're all three kind of poor sailors. They're easy. They're they're easy to uh, to discharge and to kind of cast away, um, given the, the the social order of the time. 
And so, so given their years of experience sailing, uh, their experience handling enslaved cargoes, uh, that Jackson saw an opportunity because he needed a larger crew to manage that many enslaved people on board the rising sun. And Jackson, in his final moments, may have regretted that particular hire. Uh, that this sort of brings us to the event that you actually start the book with that I've been mm-hmm. dancing around as we've been talking here. So on June 1st, 1743, some of the members of the rising sun's crew carry out this really shockingly violent mutiny. Can you lay out who among the crew were the mutineers and then who were the victims of that mutiny? Yeah, definitely. So about, about 11, 1130 or so on the night of uh, June 1st, 1743, uh, there's there they've just set they're starting to do what's called tacking the rising sun is starting to tack eastwards which is a a a sailing maneuver to sail against the current to 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 sail against the current to go to cayenne and john shaw the bosun of the ship is at the helm um it's it's the captain's watch so there's two watches on board the ship the mate's watch and the captain's watch is the captain's watch jackson the captain of course has the privilege of going to bed despite it being his watch he's just retired for the night went down to his cabin fallen asleep john shaw's at the helm and talking to him is joseph perea and begins questioning shaw about um about where they were about the distance to a place called orinoco which is in today's venezuela john shaw didn't see any harm in it and answered the man's questions and then then told him to uh, to fetch him a, a dram a, a drink of rum uh Perea goes down beneath deck uh shaw hears some talking comes back up and asks him the exact same questions but no dram shaw's annoyed answered his questions again told him to fetch a dram uh, this all this took place over about 15 minutes Shaw's still above when he hears all hell break loose down below. Joseph Perea had woken up, uh, or had, had woken up Thomas Lucas and Fernanda Costa, and they grab, uh, axes and knives and they go into the cabin, uh, George Ledane's cabin and, and Newark Jackson's cabin and, uh, begin stabbing them. The, the two men flee, uh, up, uh, so in Jackson's cabin is John Skinner, the cabin boy, uh, who was able to slip out and go up to the deck. Um, Jackson also was able to slip out while being stabbed to go up the deck. Um, and as, uh, uh, uh Thomas Lucas is about to follow him up, George Lane also comes out stabbed, um, and grabs the, um, and grabs the ladder, starts to go up, and he's uh, he's stabbed as well. But but once again, goes up the ladder and is able to get up on deck. Meanwhile, um, they uh, go after John McCoy, the the Ladane's uh, mer- clerk. They stab him nine times, and uh, he was who's probably would have been stabbed to death by Perea had Jackson Ladane not gotten up on deck, which distracted him. And so McCoy drags himself deep into the hold. Now this is after they've traded to Suriname, and there are still fifteen enslaved people on board who are watching this happen. Um, and John McCoy crawls, of course, they're down there watching this as he's crawling to hide uh, below deck. The three mutineers are then do go up on deck to, to finish their job. Um, and when, when, um, Fernando de Costa gets up on deck. He, uh, he drops his axe to turn his attention to George Ladane and Jackson grabs the axe. He's, he's laying on the deck, grabs the axe to defend himself. Um, and that's when, uh, Lucas, according to the, to, to Costa's own testimony. So we can't, we can't trust it fully. Uh, Lucas tells, uh, de Costa to grab the axe and to begin chopping. Uh, meanwhile, George Ladane has, uh, his, 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 his just laying bleeding out on the deck. 
Jackson screams, wake William Blake up, who's asleep in his, um, in his, uh, his cabin, in his berth. And he comes up the ladder and he's stabbed in the shoulder. Um, he lays on the deck and he, he watches the rest unfold. Um, they, uh, Perea begins, uh, had grabbed Jackson's cutlass out of his cabin and was slashing at John Shaw. Um, but right when he's about to dispatch John Shaw, the bosun, um, he's called over to help throw George Ladane's body or throw Jackson's body, sorry, overboard. And Shaw's able to get below deck. Um, the mutineers, uh, then throw Jackson overboard, throw Ladane. Uh, Jackson's still alive when he goes over and he's screaming as he, as he plunges into his death. Uh, Ladane's tossed overboard. Uh, John Skinner, uh, is, he's a young boy. He's maybe 10 years old. He's scared, understandably. He goes up the shrouds of the ship, which if you've ever seen a sailing ship. These are the rope, kind of the rope netting that goes up the mast. He goes up the shrouds and refuses to come down. Uh, at this point, there's almost like a beat where the attackers can sort of catch their breath and they can decide who's going to live and who's going to die. From this point, they decide to, to murder some of the folks who made it through the initial attack and then to spare some of the crew members who they had initially attacked and badly wounded. So who yes. do they choose and, and why? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So now the question is who lives and who dies. And so we have John, you know, John Skinner up on the shrouds. We have John McCoy down below deck bleeding out. We have John Shaw below deck bleeding out in his berth and William Blake wounded on deck. Blake springs into action. He, knows that the mutineers can't sail. They they have decades of sailing experience, but they don't know how to pilot a ship or navigate. They need William Blake for that. And this is probably why they only stab Blake in the shoulder initially to, to immobilize him, but then to use him later to get to Orinoco. And this is a, just to interject for our listeners, this is a point in time when, while you may be a sailor and you know how to raise the main sheet, Navigation is a very sort of academic art still at the time. It's a practical art, but it, it involves a lot of book learning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Being a mate requires a mate, which is the now essentially the pilot and navigator of the ship, uh, requires quite a bit of, of knowledge and expertise, both, uh, learned and book experience, right? You, you have to, you know, both book and, and kind of train actual on the job training. And that's, and so that's why they keep Blake alive. Um, and so John Skinner, however, the cabin boy, he's, He's a liability because he was, you know, Newark Jackson's apprentice. And so they actually coax him down off the shrouds um, with a promise that they're let him live. And the moment his feet hit the deck, uh, Ferdinand Acosta charges him, bludgeons him to death and throws his body overboard. A 10-year-old boy. Same thing's true of John McCoy, Ladane's clerk. His loyalty's led to Ladane. He doesn't, uh, or at least they don't think he has the skills to navigate the ship. So they go below deck and, and finish the job and, and throw him overboard. That leaves John Shaw, the bosun, uh, the, the other ship officer besides William Blake. And they actually wanted to kill John Shaw, but William Blake intervened. He essentially said that, uh, that, that John Shaw had been, quote, many voyages to Essequibo, which Essequibo is the river to the, to the west of Suriname on the way to Orinoco. So he's telling them that, and he speaks very good Dutch. So he knows this region really well, uh, and will be an asset to them for navigating. And that causes the mutineers to back off and allows Blake and Shaw, they allow Blake and Shaw to live along with the two young sailors, um, Josiah Jones and Henry Deveries, who they don't really 
really see as a, as a threat to their power and perhaps potential allies as fellow sailors. As I read sort of the account of the, the mutiny and then the following couple of days, it doesn't seem like their plans were very well thought out. To the extent that there was a plan at all, what did these three so-called Portuguese sailors plan to do with the ship and the cargo that they were getting after they took over? That's a good question. And, and you're, I think you're right. It was a hastily made decision, it seems, without a lot of forethought and planning. But I think what happened is they took a look around at the, the, the cargo of the ship. When it left Suriname, it was loaded, uh, with cacao, with sugar, with molasses, with the leftover enslaved people, the, the children and, and two young adults. There was also a lot of gold and silver on board the ship. And this is something that, that I'm still confounded. I wrote a book and I'm still confounded as to why. I, I think, um, there, there's a number of reasons, but I, I think Edward Tottle was facilitating cash sales for, for enslaved people. Um, and and, and is, is that was relatively rare in Suriname, but it did occur. Um, and the idea was to take that gold and silver back to Boston to um, the, the, the Wendells. Uh, Tottle's backers were involved in what's called the Silver Bank, which was an attempt to make a bank which would back paper currency with silver. Um, and so I think that's what's happening. But what it meant was in the moment, there's a lot of gold and silver on board the ship. In addition to, um, both Jackson and Ladane, they were wealthy men, even if one of them's deeply in debt. And they, and Ladane especially seemed to love to flaunt his wealth. He wore silk clothes. He wore lacy wigs. He wore, you know, gold buckles on his shoes. And so he's, it's a lot of, so there's a lot of money on board the ship. And so if you could seize that cargo and the ship itself, which had value and sell it somewhere, you might be able to make a pretty good life for yourself. And they settled on Orinoco, which is uh, today part of Venezuela. It's eastern Venezuela on the border with what's, what's today Guyana. And it's a, it's a big river basin, essentially. And the idea was, and I, we, the question is how much did the mutineers know about Orinoco and, and what did they know? And what didn't they know? Did they know, for example, that the Spanish welcomed runaway soldiers and sailors and slaves if they would pledge loyalty to the Spanish crown and become Catholic? Well, the three men are already Catholic. So all they would have to do is pledge loyalty to Spain and they might, you know, might not be many questions asked. Um, so, so why would they want to go there is, is, is a bit of a, question and how much did they know about the place they wanted to go in the book you noted that the part of the reason so many of those questions are unanswered is because the dutch officials who eventually interrogate the mutineers had a lot more questions about what and how than why they wanted to establish guilt not really motive absolutely and that's that's fairly standard for for legal procedure at the time especially in the dutch system but really uh, across the across europe and, and uh, european colonies americas uh, courts are much more concerned with what happened and to establish guilt than motive they don't they don't care about motive at the end of the day like we might care about motive um because if this was mutiny it was murder it's going to result in a, in a in, you know in a death sentence it's a capital offense and so why there's not there's not many shades there they're not like trying to difference between manslaughter and murder here they're just trying to establish guilt for a, a death sentence a, a, and a guilty finding to result these guys have to get caught and so that really is going to fall to blake and shaw and you describe the morning after the mutiny the mutineers going back up on deck and scrubbing the deck like they would on another day, except this time they're trying to scrub away the blood and they put a phony captain at the helm. So if anybody's looking, it'll look, everything will look like it's normal on board the, the rising sun. So while the mutineers are trying to conceal everything that's happening and 
put up a good front. How are Blake and Shaw passively fighting back? Well, they they hold the cards, and I think they very quickly realize that that they can navigate the ship, um, and it's between uh, Blake's knowledge of navigation and Shaw's knowledge of the coast uh, of that region. They know that they can kind of buy time and eventually, uh, you know, in this mutiny and, and ensure that these mutineers are caught and brought to justice. And so, what they do is um, they essentially it's it, the geography. Of the of the sea in that region is kind of interesting. There's this there's a current that runs from all the way from West Africa across the Atlantic and up to the the Lesser Antilles, really to Barbados and in, in, in the Caribbean, called the South Equatorial Current, and it runs up the kind of northeastern coast of South America. So if they were serious about going to Orinoco, all they would have really had to do was turn the ship due north, catch the current, and they would actually and they'd be there in a couple of days. It would drop them near the mouth of the Orinoco. They could sail out of the current and go down into the river. But instead, because the mutineers have no knowledge of, of the region or of sailing, they, they essentially just turn the ship uh, due, uh, due west out in there and near the coast. And so they're not in the current. And so the ship just kind of lumbers along the coast of Suriname very slowly for about four, uh, about four days, actually, um, until they come to the mouth of this giant river. And um, Blake tells them that this is they they believe this is the Orinoco, um, and so they sail up the river. Uh, except for it wasn't the Orinoco. So eventually, the mutineers and their newly acquired ship arrive at a colonial outpost. Yes, but it wasn't this friendly Spanish backwater they were hoping for. Where where were they? Where were they? No, and so the, the river they entered was the uh, Quarantine River, which to this day makes up Suriname's western border. Um, it's a it's a really uh, it's it's an undeveloped place in the 18th century. Uh, there's there's next to no habitation, and so the ship enters. Um, so these rivers they're tidal rivers, so they they have a really strong current uh, out at, at low tide and a really strong current in at high tide, and so you 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 time with the tides. And so when the morning high tide comes in, they catch the tide to go up the river. And they just, they just go, and it's just jungle on both sides, just jungle, jungle, jungle. They come to bends in the river and it's just jungle, islands of the river. There's just more jungle. And finally, they get about 60 miles in, in, in river, which uh, takes, you know, it takes a, a number of hours to move that far with the, even with the current and they see an outpost. And this is the moment. And Blake tells the, 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 the mutineers that yes, this is, uh, this is uh, this is the Spanish outpost. I'll, I'll, I'll stake my life on it. He says, "You can cut my head off if you don't and don't believe me." And so Fernando Costa puts on um, uh, George Ladane's clothes, his silk clothes, and his lacy wig, and his uh, his, his laced hat and his wig, uh, pretending to be the captain. And they all, except for John Shaw, uh, board the ship's boat and they they row ashore. And a group of men come out to greet them, uh, white men. And they all speak Dutch. Uh, <laughs> yes. So this was a Dutch outpost um, that, that sits on a set on a footpath that, that went between um, that went across the so the, the footpath runs between the Dutch colony of Berbice to the west into Suriname. It's for interior trade, um, especially with the Amerindian peoples that lived in the interior. And so this outpost was there to conduct trade with Amerindian people and to kind of kind of patrol, keep a Dutch presence in the area. And so it's, it's Corporal Jan Heiss is in charge of the post along with a few soldiers and a couple translators and some Amerindian allies are hanging out there when the mutineers arrive. 
the mutineers and and Blake go on shore. How does Blake let the Dutch postholder know what's happened on the Rising Sun? So he plays dumb. He essentially uh, he asks if they're in Orinoco. He's like, I don't know how they're communicating because Blake can't speak Dutch, um, and none of the none of the, the rest of the crew could speak Dutch except for John Shaw. So they must kind of communicate back on this ship and not going on shore. And so he, I, they must have communicated by hand signals or something, and they find out that they're not in Orinoco. So he, Blake plays dumb and says, "Oh, I have to go back to the ship and get my my navigational instruments, get the the charts, get the maps." And so he goes back to the Rising Sun and he grabs all of his stuff and John Shaw. So they go ashore and John Shaw then um, explains what's happened. And um, they're there long into the evening. The, the, out, the post entertains them, um, thinking they're just lost sailors, right? They, they kind of play along despite the fact that they know what's happening because uh, Corporal Heiss uh, had, had explained – to, to Blake that it's going to take him time to assemble a force. He doesn't want to ri- – there, there's two things kind of running through his mind. The first is he doesn't want to risk his soldiers entirely, and he wants a, an overwhelming force to take the mutineers of of, of Amerindian allies, of, of native peoples that he's allied with. Um, but that they can be a bit finicky um, and are not all and, and to put them in danger like this is going to do, he'll have to pay them, and, and it's going to take a bit is essentially what he said. So – um, they, they're there late in the evening. And so Shaw and Blake pretend like everything's, you know, that they're going to get back on the ship and sail back out and, and head to the Orinoco. Um, they get back on the rising sun. Uh, the, the ship's boat is still in the water beside the, sh- beside the rising sun. And Blake and Shaw are confronted because the mutineers know that they, that they're not dumb, right? They know that Shaw's told the, the official uh, Jan Heiss, the, exactly what's happening. Um, they want to, Joseph Perea says they should kill Shaw right then and there. Um, but Fernand Costa says, no, we need to leave. Uh, we need to get out of here now. The tide's going out. It's getting dark. We have to go now. Um, when the two men get in an argument, Bla- uh, Shaw sees the opportunity. He jumps overboard. Remember, he's been wounded. He's been slashed, but he jumps overboard into the ship's boat or, um, and, 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 and rows ashore. Um, and they, instead of going after him, uh, DaCosta and, and Lucas and, and Perea freak out. They cut the, they literally cut the anchor cable, uh, to the ship and it takes off down the river. But it's just drifting, right? They're not navigating down. They're the not river. navigating. No, it's, it, and it's getting dark. It's dusk. It, the rivers, the currents flowing out fast with the tide and they run aground. The next morning, um, they get up. There's no sign of Shaw. There's no sign of Heiss. Uh, they've moved up the river a little bit. The tide comes back in. So the ship floats, uh, cause the, the, there's more water and they, they begin moving. There's, they, they begin going upriver a little bit. This time, of course, they're fighting the tide. The moment the tide begins letting out again, they run aground. So now we're, it's June 7th, 1743, uh, two days. And on that morning, after they, they run aground, um, they see three ships of, uh, the, they wake up the next morning hoping the ship will float again. And they see, uh, these, they see three boats coming at them. The, the first is the Rising Sun's boat and Jan Heiss and, and, uh, and John Shaw are in it along with the Dutch soldiers flanked by two canoes of Amerindian warriors, uh, probably about, uh, about 30 men in all, um, all told. There's 
a movement to to Joseph Perea wants to load the Rising Sun does have a couple guns on it. He wants to load it, um, but they very quickly realize that uh, that there's no sense in fighting. Perea is not a skilled gunner. There's not enough gunpowder on board to hold him off. Um, so. At this moment, Josiah Jones and Henry Devries jump overboard and swim ashore. Um, and the, the three boats surround the rising sun, everyone boards. Um, and in the, in this, in this moment, uh, Joseph Preya actually jumps overboard and swims ashore and runs into the jungle, uh, and, and disappears for a bit. Meanwhile, um, Jan Heiss arrests both Ferdinand Acosta and Thomas Lucas. And so this is how they're apprehended. And Blake and Shaw take the rising sun back to the outpost on the quarantine. So, so the, the mutiny is now over, uh, at this moment. But Perea is still on the run. How, how does he end up getting recaptured? Or what, I should say, what becomes of Perea? <laughs> what becomes of Perea? He's, he's on the run. It's unclear how long. Um, I, a few days, certainly. And so Heiss, uh, the first thing they do is they send out a short search party almost immediately. And I, I mean, this is incredible. And it tells you the, the anger and frustration that Blake and Shaw and Jones and Devries have with these mutineers because they actually join the search party. I mean, they're, Blake and Shaw have been wounded severely and they've joined this search party to go into the jungle and find him and they, and they can't find him immediately. So they go back to the post on the quarantine, uh, in the quarantine and, um, Heiss hires a, a significant, a pretty good sized, uh, posse of Amerindian warriors to most likely, um, uh, Kalinago, um, or I'm sorry, Kalina, um, or, or Carib, as they're sometimes known, uh, to track Perea through the, the jungle. And they eventually find him after a couple of days. Um, and they, they find him and they, they surround him. And he actually, uh, kills himself. He pulls his knife and, and stabs himself, uh, to, to, to avoid being captured. And then to prove that they, they apprehended him, the, 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 the party actually, uh, beheads him to take his head back to, to prove to Heiss and then later to the governor of Suriname that, uh, that he has been, been captured and killed. And mentioning that his head's taken to the governor brings up a, a good point that the trial of the two surviving mutineers isn't going to be held in this, this tiny little, outpost 60 miles upriver on the wrong river no it's going to have to be held in the capital what was that process of investigation interrogation and trial like both for the two defendants the mutineers and then the rest of the crew members who would have been participating in the trial as witnesses it takes about a week um, to to go from this post in the quarantine to Paramaribo, the capital of Suriname, because you have to sail up the river, sail along the coast, and then back down the river to Paramaribo. So, like, essentially, make a like a uh, like an upside down U shape. Um, and that takes some time, or you can go overland, which would take even longer. And so. Um, that's one of the reasons the timeline. So one of the things that Heist does is they get the rising sun back to the post on the quarantine and he takes an inventory of the ship, uh, everything on it. And then he sends, uh, Shaw and Blake and Lucas and Perea back to Paramaribo with a group of Amerindian warriors of allies of the Dutch. Um, this is probably going to, this probably slowed things down quite a bit because they're going to go in canoes. And they're going to go very slowly and deliberately to ensure that their prisoners don't get away. So they reach Paramaribo and it, it's there that uh, there's an initial inquiry done of a testimony of William Blake and John Shaw is taken. Um, 
And then the mutineers, as they begin gathering evidence uh, for tr- the trial of, of the mutineers. But the, the governor and the, the rad fiscal or the attorney general of the colony uh, uh, are reluctant to begin the trial until they've uh, somehow apprehended the third mutineer. So that's so so things are in, in limbo until they hear of Perea's death uh, a, a few days later, about a week or so later. Um, and the ship itself is actually left at the post in the quarantine for a long time uh, with Josiah Jones and Henry Devries, who are in charge of the ship now and have all these enslaved captives are still there, too, on board the ship. Those are the two, just the ordinary seamen, right? Who are the able seamen who are left now in charge of all the goods and the enslaved people. Yes, yes. Who are probably no more than 20 years old. They're not much older than the enslaved people on board the ship. Big promotion for them. Yes, big promotion. And of course, the Dutch soldiers are there and stuff too. But but yeah, big promotion for them. So once word has traveled back to the rest of Suriname that we have the head of the third mutineer, um, what does the trial consist of? beyond just the testimony of Blake and Shaw. So, yeah, so they they bring the Rising Sun back as well, so it can be inventoried and inspected. Uh, Josiah Jones and Henry Deveries come back as well, um, along with the the cargo, um, the, the enslaved children. And so the, the first thing that's done is a group uh, a group testimonies taken of the four men, uh, Jones, Deveries, Shaw, and Blake. They all sign it, and it's essentially a collective testimony, very similar to that offered by uh, Blake and Shaw earlier, actually lacking in even more details. It's just really an account of the mutiny itself meant to establish the guilt of the two men that will be put on trial. Um, the two men are then put on trial. Um, and, and by that they're, they're interrogated. Um, so the way that once again, the Dutch, the Dutch legal process, there, there's no assumption of innocence. Like the, 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 they're, they know that they're guilty. Now they just have to establish that guilt. Um, so what we today have think of presumption of innocence, that's just not there. Um, and so, yeah, they, they essentially they just lay out questions because they want to figure out what exactly happened um, it, during this. And then once they question them, they get them to confess. Uh, they both sign their confessions and then they can move on. Um, there was, it seems, Ferdinand Acosta is very clear that he knows it's over. It, you can see that in his testimony. He answers all their questions. He freely confesses to can freely confess to what happened. Thomas Lucas did not. He's much more obstinate. He stopped, he only answered about, uh, about a third of the questions. Uh, so there's like 70 some odd questions that the officials asked them. He only answered about a third of them. Um, and then he also refused to confess. Um, and his answers at one point were so misleading that he's actually forced to sit in the room with, uh, with, with Fernanda Costa, who's confirming or arguing against him, uh, at that point. So, it's unclear. They do eventually get Lucas's confession. It's unclear if they use torture or not. Um, the Dutch were not afraid to use torture even by this point, even by the 1740s. It was still, uh, especially in Suriname, it was commonly used. Um, so there is a potential they actually had to torture him to, to get his confession. And quite honestly, the means of execution aren't that different than what we might call torture. So once they, they've secured these men's uh, confessions, they're obviously found guilty. Then the death sentence that was probably inevitable from the beginning of the trial is on the table, and it's up to the the colonial governor to decide the method of execution. So it sounds like they have to both choose something that'll fit the crime and also serve as a deterrent to anybody else who might be 
another sailor who might be tempted to mutiny in the future. So what was that? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it, it had to be as much performance as it was execution, right? Just going out and hanging these men or beheading them was not going to cut it because the, the governor says he has to send an example to sailors. And, and so what he decided on is that he actually decided he would use the rising sun as a prop in this, uh, in this spectacle. So he had the rising sun moored in front of Fort Zealandia, which is the main fort in, uh, in, in Paramaribo. Actually built by the English, but it's the it's the center of Dutch authority. It's the they were there's a dungeon there, and that's where the the mutineers were held during the trial. Um, and so the rising sun's moored right there at the fort, um, and a, a the they put a beam across the main mast of the of the schooner, and the the two men are hauled up by their armpits and and put and and hung there uh, by their armpits up on this board. Um, and then the, uh, the executioners who are in, tend to be either free black or enslaved people in a slave society like Suriname, they use red hot pinchers to pull off skin where they were, where they had stabbed, uh, every, all the other crew. So Jackson, Ladane, uh, Skinner, uh, McCoy, Blake, and Shaw, they would, uh, they use hot pinchers to pull off their flesh, the places they were, they'd stabbed other people. Um, and they were left to hang there for, for 24 hours, um, or they were left to hang there for a bit longer. And then the, uh, they were taken down and the Dutch authorities, uh, this was a common torture and punishment in Suriname. They took a giant iron hook and rammed it through the rib cages of the two men and hoisted them back up on the, the yard arm that they had built uh, on the ship and hung them there for 24 hours. Uh, according to the accounts of the execution, uh, one of the two men, I'm not sure if it was Lucas or, or DaCosta, was still alive 24 hours later. Uh, they hadn't perished, and they are then beheaded, and their heads are put on display to, uh, to as a warning to sailors uh, coming into Suriname. So that is the gruesome end of our surviving mutineers. How does word get back to Boston? How do Jackson and Ladane's families and the Boston public eventually learn about the mutiny on the rising sun? It's, a, it's an interesting question because letters start drifting back very, uh, very quickly after Blake and Shaw get to Paramaribo. And it's pretty clear. I mean, if you read and those letters are sent to Boston and they're, they're pretty much published, some of them verbatim, some of them summarized, uh, depending on the newspaper in, in late July, 1743. Um, and so it's most likely, it's certainly the ones in Boston that are published, um, are from Edward Toddle. It's clear. There's also, uh, but there's also, uh, the stories picked up in the, in the New York press as well. There's a, on August 15th, 1743, there's a very long story in, in the New York Weekly Journal. Uh, about the mutiny. And it's, it's Blake and Shaw's testimony, their initial testimony they offered, uh, when they first got to Parbaribo. And it's unclear if Edward Toddle sent that or not. But there are, there is a sizable community of English merchants and, and British American merchants in Suriname. And they're probably sending, they're sending letters, um, to, to Boston and to, uh, to New York. Um, and then, then eventually the stories picked up. So the, mainly the Boston stories are reprinted in Philadelphia, but also in Great Britain itself, um, in, in London and Ipswich and, and Dublin, it's even picked up, um, and, and some other, uh, Newcastle upon Tyne. All of, all those newspapers pick up these stories, both those printed in Boston and then also in New York. William Blake continued keeping his log, not the captain's log, start eight 2021, but the, his, his mate's log after the mutiny. 
was that eventually copied and sent around as part of the record or the the publicity around this trial? Yeah, so he kept he continued keeping his log uh, after the mutiny. So both captains and mates keep logs um, of, of the joint. So he continued keeping his log, and that became the basis of of evidence for the for the crew uh, and the basis of of the account. Um, and so when they essentially, it seems the the accounts that are published in Boston and and New York seem to have been William Blake's account augmented or William Blake's. Uh, uh, his log augmented by John Shaw's testimony, uh, cause they, they both tend to be signatories. Um, and, and Edward Tuttle probably helped them prepare that testimony. So, it, so yeah, his, his, his log is one of the key pieces of evidence we have for understanding the, the mutiny because he, he continued keeping it even after. And at, at some point as the tale of this, this mutiny is spreading, you note that there's a, a shift in just describing the mutineers as three Portuguese fellows to describing them as Portuguese Negro sailors. Why do you think that linguistic shift was important or resonated with readers in the British Atlantic world, including here in Boston? I, yeah, you're absolutely right. So the, 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 their identity gradually changes as the story travels and especially in the British press, but really everywhere they transform from being these Portuguese, just called Portuguese sailors or Portuguese fellows to Portuguese Negro sailors and that the, the element of race is introduced. And I think really in this, I, I argue this in the book is that it essentially makes the story more digestible. It takes what, what was a seemingly senseless event and adds, uh, adds uh, a, a key piece of context for understanding why it happened. Essentially, it blames this mutiny on these men's inherent blackness, on their, on their race, that they are, you know, that, that, that that's why they did this, that, that they're, they're multi, they're, they're, they're black men who could not be, who, who, well, they, they couldn't be trusted and they, they're duplicitous. And so they, they committed murder. And so it becomes a, it becomes a racial story, um, by the end. Um, and that adds a sort of a piece of context that allows, allows this story to be understood by the, the British Atlantic reading public who would, who would have indulged their own prejudices, right? Their own racism, uh, to, to make sense of this story. And an execution sure sounds final, but that's not really the end of the story because now Edward Toddles left to recover a ship that everybody knows was used as a smuggler and he's got a cargo that everybody knows was contraband. So there's going to be a sort of a push and pull between Toddle, the Dutch governor, the attorney general over what should become of the rising sun. Can you describe what that argument was like? Yeah. So there seemed to be, of course, Edward Toddle just wanted everything handed over to him and he would take care of it. That wasn't going to happen. Um, so you have two other, two other figures coming to play here. The first, the governor, uh, Johan Mauritius, uh, as the governor and the, uh, rad fiscal or attorney general, uh, Jakob de, de, de Hawaiian. He's, uh, Hawaiian thinks that the ship should be seized. A ship and its cargo should be seized. It's all contraband. Um, he also argues that because the mutineers were not, uh, they, they don't, they were not of an allied nation to the Netherlands, right? So they were Portuguese. They're not British and Britain and, and the Netherlands were allied. Since they're not of an allied nature, nation, the ship's actually liable for seizure as, uh, as, um, as both contraband, but also as, um, as essentially the, they committed piracy. And so you could seize the, the, what would he call piracy? So you could seize the, the vessel. Um, 
Mauritius is much more hesitant on that. Uh, he thinks that, uh, that the cargo that Jackson, everyone knows that that ship was British. And his reasoning behind this is kind of funny. He said, um, everyone knows it's British because everyone knows Newark Jackson and George Ladane, who were British subjects, um, because everyone's dealing with smugglers, right? Um, so everyone knows, uh, everyone knows them. So we should allow these goods to be sold to both British and Dutch subjects. Um, and so they, they essentially, they, they tussle, they, they, they essentially tussle back and forth a bit and eventually agree that yes, these, these can be, that the ship should not be seized, that it should be, uh, eventually the ship should be released to its owner, in this case, Gedney Clark, um, and Mary Ladane, George Ladane's widow. Um, and the cargo should be divvied up and sold to both Dutch and British merchants. Um, but with the condition that Hal Wayne, the, Hal Wayne, the, uh, the, the rad fiscal, he will, uh, oversee all of this. He'll take an inventory of the ship and he'll impound the goods and make sure they're being sold properly. Now, what adds a twist to this is that helping Hal Wayne take that, uh, the, the inventory is Edward Tottle. So, and it, and it seems that over time, Howling really softened, um, and in much, a lot of kind of nefarious underhanded activity happens around the cargo to sell it to the people who Edward Tuttle wants to sell it to. And then just to point out that sort of the centerpiece of that remaining cargo, it's 15 children, and they've been on the ship now, on the Rising Sun, for weeks and weeks since the mutiny, and then months before that, since they left Ghana. How much could you uncover about what eventually became of those those kids? Not much at all. What I do what I do know is that that was that was where Hawine drew the line. He would not allow them to be sold. So there were two inventories taken to the ship uh, after the mutiny. The official inventories by Hawine and, and Toddle. The one was of the cargo. The other is the ship. And the cargo one's missing, and I, we don't know why, but it's not there anymore. It's in an index for the book, but it's not in the book itself, it, and it's unclear why exactly that's the case. Why the why that's the case? But what we do know is that in the the, the enslaved children are listed in the ship's inventory, i.e., that they are property of the ship and could not be alienated from the ship. And so, I it's pretty clear that was a legal maneuver by Hawine to prevent the enslaved children from being sold um, in Suriname and forcing them to. To leave with the ship when it's sent back to Barbados to get me Clark. So they are on board. Uh, so they're, you know, after the beauty, their trial continues. They're, they're, they're now being shipped back to Barbados. And from there, they kind of disappear. I have circumstantial evidence for two of them. And they're both kind of tragic. So I, this is, <laughs> this is the story though. Um, is the first is a, a, one of the little girls of the, of the 13 boys and girls, one of the little girls. Um, if you follow the, the correspondence between Gedney Clark and, uh, the merchant firm, a firm of Sweat and Hooper in Salem, Massachusetts, uh, beginning in March 1743, Robert Hooper, uh, one of the, the members of this firm, begins asking Gedney Clark for an enslaved girl for his household to work in his household. He keeps ask every uh, across all summer through se- spring and summer of 1743, he continues asking Gedney Clark for an enslaved girl. And finally, Gedney Clark sends an enslaved girl in um, September, 1743, 
to uh, Robert Hooper. And I'm pretty sure she was a girl off the rising sun um, that he had just gotten the ship back, needed to dispose of, of, of the cargo that was remaining on the ship, including the enslaved children, uh, because he was not going to get an insurance payment for them because uh, they were still on board the ship. So he couldn't get a, he couldn't claim them. So he had to sell them himself or dispose of them himself. So he sent this little girl to Robert Hooper. She died uh, less than 24 hours after arriving in Salem, Massachusetts. Um, and, and and if this little girl was as I as I speculated in the book, this little girl was from the Rising Sun, and she had been through that. It was it was probably she was just probably so weakened from months on board a ship and held and you know held on the confines of this tiny ship, uh, and she probably probably perished after this final final voyage from Barbados to Massachusetts. Um, the other uh, enslaved person we know uh, is there's an enslaved man named Frank listed in Newark Jackson's inventory. And after, you know, as they're accounting for his inventory and his name, he's called Frank from Barbados and he's sold almost immediately after arriving in Boston. And so I, I, I speculate in the book that Frank was one of the young men from the, one of the two young men from the rising sun. And he's sent to Boston and as to pay Newark Jackson's widow, Amy Jackson, uh, as part of his, to pay a part of what, uh, Gendy Clark owed her or owed him, Newark Jackson from the voyage. And so when she receives Frank, she immediately sells him, uh, in Boston. And it's, uh, it doesn't say to who. And I'm unclear of, of Frank's fate from there. That leads us to these three newly widowed women back in Boston. We have Amy Jackson, Mary Ladane, and Jean McCoy. How how did their lives and fortunes change in the years and the decades after the mutiny? Jean McCoy, we don't know much about. She was John McCoy's uh, wife. Um, they were young, probably mid-20s. Uh, and... He didn't have many debts. Um, his estate was, wasn't, also wasn't particularly valuable. So she disappears after, after dealing with the probate, you know, probating his inventory and his estate. Um, my guess is she remarried. Um, there's evidence that they were from, uh, the Merrimack River Valley in New Hampshire. So she, she may have returned, uh, to return there. Um, Amy Jackson uh, saw a an incredible decline in her fortunes because all these debts of her husband surface. Um, no longer able to service those debts because the hus- he's no- Newark Jackson's no longer in the picture or working. Um, she has to pay them, and there uh, many of them are called due. Um, so many debts are coming out of the woodwork that she has to issue uh, take out an advertisement in the newspaper to for people to come forward if if Newark Jackson owned them owed her money. It takes um, nearly three years to settle all the accounts um, and requires selling an extensive amount of the family property, including all the enslaved people they owned. Um, so they own three enslaved people and Frank, the man I just mentioned, who, who arrived from Barbados. Um, she received some of the gold and silver off board, on board the Rising Sun as payment for her husband's final voyage. She spent all that covering debts. Um so a significant decline in fortune. Um, she's able to hold on to the pew until I believe 1748 at Old North, uh, but from there she disappeared from the record. I, I think she may have remarried a, a merchant by the name of uh, David Gardner. Um, her daughters, uh, one I think the, the son may have passed away. Um, and the two daughters, they also marry, um, Elizabeth Jackson, um, Newark Jackson, Amy Jackson's oldest daughter, la- later married, um, 
uh, merchant in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Once again, the, the, the Essex County connection, um, named Isaac Walker and they named their son Newark Jackson Walker. So that's the, there is some legacy. Um, and the family did continue to own a little bit of property in the North End that's still referenced in deeds and stuff like that up through the 1770s. So there is, so, so they see a significant decline in fortune, but they are able to hang on a little bit, uh, yeah, moving forward. Mary Ladane probably was the one who fared the best. Um, Jackson, or uh, I'm sorry, George Ladane, they had prepared, you know, for they, she was financially well off. Um, and most importantly, in, 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 in this case, uh, is that Mary Ladane had Edward Toddle in her corner, right? The, the, her husband's good friend who was going to watch her back before he watched, uh, Gedney Clark's back. And so almost immediately upon learning of her husband's death, the first thing she does is she goes to the probate court and issues a power of attorney for Edward Toddle to take care of all the affairs in Suriname. And he does, he serves her interest and, and recovers quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of wealth for her, a lot of money. Um, and so she fares, I mean, she lost her husband, um, but in financially she's probably the, the kind of fares the best. So we see that this works out pretty well for Mary Ledane. You say that she lost her husband, but financially she comes out more or less ahead what does that say for how Gedney Clark's fortune fared in this period? His fortune fares pretty well. What we have to remember is that Gedney Clark's hands are in a lot of different pots. And so this is one of many things he's involved in. In terms of this venture, though, it doesn't turn out particularly well. Um, he's left to fight with the insurers. Um, and the insurer, so they essentially what happens is, um, they acquire the insurance in London from a group of underwriters. Um, one of the, the main underwriter, a 1500 pounds of insurance. So a significant amount, uh, for both the ship and its cargo. And like I said, the, probably what was most insured were, were the enslaved people on board. And the underwriters, uh, one of the largest underwriters, Henry LaSalle's at 500 pounds, but the other thousand pounds comes from a group of, uh, of various merchants who chose to kind of chose to underwrite the venture and they refuse to pay. Um, they claim that, uh, they have to see exactly, uh, they, they, they want to see a full accounting of the ship and its cargo, uh, how, how much damage did the ship sustain and what's it worth? How many enslaved people were left on board that they don't have to pay out for because they could be sold elsewhere? Um, how much of the, what are the, how much money did you make off the cargo that's left, uh, that we won't have to cover, right? They want all of this information. And the only source of the, of, of especially regarding the cargo, the only source of information is Edward Toddle. And he essentially, he just plays the long game. He doesn't really refuse per se, but he sends some accounts here and there. He sends some, um, he, he always promises, I'll get you the paperwork, I'll get you the paperwork, or, oh, the fiscal, the rad fiscal, he needs the paperwork, and then then once I talk to him, I'll send you the paperwork, right? So there's this constant, um, so there's constant kind of deflecting, 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 um, and, and he making it even worse, the LaSalle's appointed an agent in Amsterdam to take care of this for them, to communicate directly with Toddle, thinking that uh, that the rad fiscal had had kind of forced this, and, like that he could only work through the Dutch, essentially, which, of course, was not the case. So Toddle just kind of plays the long game and essentially they never get paid. Uh, the only 
uh, it's unclear if the insurance claim ever went through. It probably didn't. Um, but the, the only payment that, that Clark and the LaSalle's, his investors ever obtained was payment for the, the, was what he sold the ship for and what he sold the remainder, remaining enslaved uh, people for. That's all he ever made from the voyage. Um, and so it caused a total breakdown. Between, um, certainly between Edward Tottle and Gedney Clark. Um, and it tells you, you know, what the importance of being a good friend, right? Like, like Tottle serving the Ladane's interests first and then Gedney Clark's interest. Um, and so. And, and, and this is happening at the exact same moment that Clark's relationships with other New Englanders are falling apart. He's having a, a couple, he's having a, another business argument with the Sweat and Hooper, who I referenced in, in Salem, with Edward Bromfield in Boston. And so what you begin, so this is a, a turning moment in Edward or in Gedney Clark's career because he essentially comes to see that maybe New England's not the place where his fortune lies, working with New Englanders. Uh, he maintains family connections, of course. He maintains some friend friend relations, uh, although those fall apart too with the Wendells over a business dispute. But he really turns his attention to uh, cultivating his London investors, like the LaSalle's, like others, and, and essentially putting money into uh, buying up plantations uh, and enslaved workers in in the Guianas and in other places. And so his entire focus kind of switches. Uh, he switches focus, um, essentially, and moves away from New England uh, as a whole, and, and that's kind of indicative of what's hap- what's going to happen in the you know the twenty thirty years before the American Revolution is this kind of separation between the West Indies, which had been so close with uh, with with British North America, that, that separation begins to happen, and this is a great microcosm of that, um, and it works out really well for Gedney Clark. He's the probably the richest man or one of the two richest men in the British Empire at the time of his death. And 1764. Not a bad gig if you can get it. No. You wrote about how you first encountered Jackson or you re-encountered Jackson in this conversation with Old North. And now your research has led to a lot more of the details about Jackson's role in human trafficking and enslaving being rediscovered. And Old North has had to re-examine their relationship with, with Jackson. They've taken their his name off their historic chocolate program. They've started to reinterpret uh, or add new interpretation around his his role as a captain in enslaving people. But you point out that there's nothing unusual about Jackson. There's nothing unusual about this voyage right up to the moment when the mutiny begins. What does that tell us about how many similar captains or similar voyages or similar human cargoes would have been out there that aren't recorded in a trial, a mutiny trial that comes out of them? It tells us there's a lot. I mean, and that's the, the kind of short answer, right? Is that this is one of many types of the, of these voyages that's happening. And, and not only that, but th- this was, uh, this was something that people did not want to be seen. Like, they don't want this to be seen. They don't want this to be on display. Um, and, and so this opens a window on something that's very common that, that, that's happening all the time in the 18th century, especially before the American Revolution. That this is, this is fairly commonplace. 
uh, that this this connection between kind of smuggling and, and slavery uh, that, that, that that it's totally commonplace and that, that we that when we think about smuggling uh, or we think about slavery for that matter we should also be thinking about the you know they should be thinking about the other one that, that these two these two practices smuggling and slavery are deeply interconnected and interlinked and form a cornerstone of the the early American economy and and as I say in the book the kind of rise of, of capitalism in in America. And as we think about how central to merchant Boston's identity smuggling was in the decade or so before the American Revolution, maybe we should reexamine what that means for the connection of Boston to slavery as well. Absolutely. The book, again, is Mutiny on the Rising Sun by Jared Ross Hardesty. Uh, Jared, if people want to follow you or learn more about your work online, where should they look for that? Uh, yeah, so you can find me two places. One is my email, which you can find on my uh, department. Uh, just just Google my name and it'll come up at uh, Western Washington University. You can send me an email. Or uh, I am on Twitter um, and my Twitter handle, handle is at Dr. Hardesty. And do you have any book events coming up in the Boston area where people can come out, meet you, learn more about the book in the time around its release? Yeah, I, there are two virtual events, so I won't be in Boston itself, but you can uh, hear me talk more about the book. Um, I'm doing an event on November 3rd, uh, the evening of November 3rd at the Old North Church, uh, for, uh, sponsored the research, uh, talking about the book. And then um, on November 10th at the Boston Public Library, I'll be doing a Q&A about the book, uh, a virtual Q&A for the book at 6 p.m. And we'll link to both those in the show notes this week, as well as a purchase link for the book and, of course, our painting of the sea captains carousing in Suriname. Dr. Jared Ross Hardesty, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jake. Great time. To learn more about Dr. Hardesty, Captain Jackson, or the connections between a secretive chocolate cartel, human trafficking, and Old North Church, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 234. We'll have a link where you can support the show with a fraction of the purchase price when you buy the book. I'll also include information about Dr. Hardesty's earlier books, links to his author page and Twitter profile, and information about his two upcoming Boston area events. Plus, I'll include a copy of the painting Sea Captains Carousing in Suriname by John Greenwood, which reveals so much about how these men saw themselves and about the open secret of their smuggling concerns in Suriname. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link, and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line. I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 